Good morning, Wrestling Inc. Happy Thanksgiving. It is me, Nick Hausman, your managing editor, and we are back with a very special holiday episode of The Winkly. If you are listening to this before your Thanksgiving dinner, I hope you enjoy it. And if you're listening to this after your Thanksgiving dinner, don't go to sleep. Sleep, don't sleep. Fight off the sleep. Yes, we're going to have a great time here today, everybody. We've got a huge episode. We've got interviews with MLW's Court Bauer, the man of the hour, the man with the power, Court Bauer, who's going to dive in deep all about the goings-on in the ring, behind the curtains, with MLW. What do they have planned for 2019? He's going to tell you all about it. Also today, we got a clip from the interview I did with Johnny Impact. That's right, John Hennigan, his real name, was just eliminated from Survivor. I got to sit down with him last week. We did a whole exit interview all about his Survivor elimination. The full interview is already available over on the Wrestling Inc. audio channel, but I'm going to play a little clip here, a little snippet in the middle of one of my favorite parts uh, so you guys can get an idea of what that conversation was like. And also, we've got an interview with the Marine 6 director, James Nunn. If you're a fan of the Marine franchise, if you're a fan of The Miz, if you're a fan of films, you are going to absolutely love this interview. All of that's here on the show today. And, of course, we are going to be breaking down the news of the week. And joining me today... As my co-host for this very special holiday edition of the Winkly is going to be none other than Jesse Collins. Jesse has been joining me for weeks here doing his views from the turnbuckles audio edition on the show. I said, Jesse, it's a holiday. Why limit you and I to just 10, 15 minutes? Let's do the whole news. So Jesse and I, we sit down and we chat all the news of the day. And with that, you know what? Let's just get right to it. Happy Thanksgiving one more time. And here is me and Jesse talking all the news of the past seven days. I have so much pressure on me to deliver a high-quality podcast performance. I hope I can make, I can live up to the hype that you have now uh, thrust upon my shoulders. Well, I think you're going to, I mean, we all know you're going to be great, Jesse. I like talking to you because I know you take the business seriously. I know you keep track of everything that's going on. And uh, I could think of somebody else for the week of Thanksgiving. I give thanks for getting to have known you, Jesse. I know we're going to have a good time here today. So let's get to it. Let's start talking about Braun Strowman. Um, WWE just announced that he's going to be going under undergoing surgery. Uh, the Wrestling Observer reported that it's going to be elbow surgery. He's had some bone spurs. Sounds like the TLC match with Baron Corbin uh, may be up in the air, um, but it also sounds like he is scheduled still to face Brock at the Royal Rumble. Kind of makes a whole lot of the decisions they've been making with Braun recently make a little bit more sense, you know, obviously pointing back to Crown Jewel, why didn't they put the title on them then? It seems like this is probably the reason, right? Well, if there were questions about his, uh, you know, his health and his ability to perform at all these shows, you know, he was given a big position at Survivor Series. His position at Survivor Series was if he was the captain of the Raw team and he won the match, and it's the raw one, then he would get a title shot. So it seems like they've always had him in the plans to be a main event kind of guy for the, over the next several months. Um, but now, obviously, things have to change because he's going to be off TV for at least a couple of weeks, I assume. And you talked about the TLC match being up in the air. I mean, with bone spurs, it's, it's kind of a tricky injury, but I think just bone spurs in the elbow, I think he can tough out uh, a match with, with Corbin. Now, a TLC match is a little bit more difficult but also, Strowman isn't a guy that really relies a lot on athleticism and being able to run and jump 
kind of the way some of the other guys on the roster and other wrestlers are. So I think he's given his style, he can probably tough out a, a match like less than hundred percent being less than a hundred percent than maybe a guy like Seth Rollins who relies on more, more of an athletic style. So I think he's going to be okay. Um, yeah. I, I, I hope you're right. You know, for me, I look at this and from a storyline perspective, I mean, it seems like Corbin is trying to nail down that general manager spot here by taking out uh, Braun Strowman like this. I, you know, if, if Braun does come back, I would think that he's going to have to get one over on Baron Corbin at TLC, and this could be the end of the general manager Corbin character. Personally, I don't like Baron Corbin, like, at all. I don't understand. Like, they have some talent on their roster, and I don't really understand why Baron Corbin warrants so much of my TV time. Uh, I think he's pretty boring on promos. I think he's pretty boring in the ring. Don't think he does anything special. Don't think he's particularly over. So it's kind of... I don't really – like I said, I don't really understand why he gets so much TV time. Oh, come on, Jesse. Corbin's great. He's such an unlikable dick, right? I mean, he's the perfect corporate stooge. I guess in the sense that he's he's good as far as being like the stooge and just kind of being the fall guy for, you know, Stephanie McMahon. But I don't I don't find him entertaining at all. Like he could disappear from, from WWE television and I, I would not miss him at all well but he's a heel right you're not supposed to like but he's not an entertaining heel this is you know we might get into this later talking about ronda and charlotte and becky lynch that i don't think people really care about heels and baby faces they care about who's entertaining and who's interesting and baron corbin has never been interesting to me at any point in his entire life no but wait he's far more interesting now than before he was brought in as like the the muscle for Stephanie McMahon. I I think this, if anything, is the most interesting he's been since he came to the roster. Before this, he was just what? Well, he, he has a defined a... role now, so it makes sense for him to be like he like he's has a role on television. He's not just a guy in matches or a guy working a feud or not. But honestly, he does absolutely nothing for me. I was talking to a fellow for a fan the other day, and I was saying I can't remember a less remarkable, more uninteresting person occupying so much time on WWE television with the exception of maybe John Laurinaitis, even Jinder Mahal, who I absolutely hated when he was being pushed, at least his presentation and his entrance and his nickname was cool, and he kind of scowled a lot, and that was at least something. Baron has nothing for me. Zip. Don't care at all. And one of the bad parts about Strowman being out now is that the show is really heavily going to be built around Corbin. It's going to be built around Ronda Rousey and Ambrose and Rollins' feud, but Corbin has now become a top name on WWE television, and I just don't see it with this guy. And that's just my it, opinion. It is weird how him and Ronda, like Ronda was like, I'll fight you, right? You know, they're at a point now where they're so strapped for, you know, people that can get heat and people that are over as baby faces that they're, you know, kind of blurring that line intergender-wise because I don't know that there's another anti-establishment character on Raw that's as popular as Ronda Rousey right now. And so I, I just there's feel like- not. There's yeah. not Nick. And that's part of the Strowman injury. You know, Drew goes, I'm sorry, Roman, unfortunately, you know, gets diagnosed with leukemia and has to vacate. And so, okay, we'll build uh, around Strowman as the new babyface. Now Strowman's out missing time. Raw is missing a lot of star power right now. So you got, you got Reigns out. Now you got Strowman out. Brock's the champion, but Brock's not going to be there every week. Rollins is there, but him and Ambrose are in a feud together. So, obviously Rousey is still a big star, but they're really low on like real difference makers and real A-level kind of stars. 
and it's tough. It's a tough. The Strowman injury is not great timing for them. Yeah, and you know, we're looking down the pipe here, the match that it sounds like it's still on the table is Braun Strowman versus Brock Lesnar at the Royal Rumble, which is off in January. Seems like it's going to happen for sure. And on that note, I want to bring up that you know, on TMZ, Dana White was saying that he thinks that. Uh, Daniel Cormier, Daniel Cormier's next big fight is going to be against John Jones, not against Brock Lesnar. So I almost wonder if this has gotten so bad for them uh, to the point where they're looking for big name draws to keep uh, on board. If I don't know how much money they're giving Brock Lesnar, but it's got to be a lot if you're trying to pry him away from having another UFC fight. So he'll stay in the WWE mix right now. I mean, Dana's a promoter. I don't really believe anything that he says in regards to who's going to fight when until it's a locked-in official fight. Fair. My interpretation is that Brock really doesn't have to choose UFC or WWE. Brock's going to do whatever gives him makes him the most money, and what makes him the most money is he's going to do both. So I assume he's going to fight DC. Maybe he'll fight John Jones after uh, Jones fights DC and if Jones wins. But I don't see Brock turning down the potential, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars uh, from Uf- from a UFC fight that he's going to make. He's going to make he'd make so much money off the UFC fight, and he can still have his he can have his cake, cake and eat it too, right? He can still work for WWE just like he did when he fought Mark Hunt. He made a ton of money off the Mark Hunt fight, was still performing for WWE. He doesn't have to choose one or the other. So I don't really see him, you know, not going to UFC and not going. Yeah, I think I think he's going to do both. So. I, I think he's going to beat – I personally, I think he's going to beat Strowman at the Royal Rumble. I think he's going to go yeah. on WrestleMania as the champion. The thing about the – the they kind of laid out the next few months for us on Raw where they said Strowman versus Corbin at TLC, then Strowman versus Lesnar at the Royal Rumble, which implies, which is something I think we all kind of knew, that Lesnar wasn't going to defend the title at TLC. He's going to defend it at the Royal Rumble, and Strowman's the next challenger. To me, the interesting – Part about that is what's going to happen to Drew McIntyre because Drew's been groomed to be a top guy. He's been very protected. Clearly, WWE has some plans for him. And now you have WWE kind of laying out the next few months for us with, okay, Strowman and Corbin and then Strowman and Lesnar. That does not include any matches between Strowman and McIntyre. So to me, I think McIntyre is going to be kind of kept hot but on the side and that eventually they're going to build towards McIntyre doing something after the Royal Rumble, which seems to imply that it would be at WrestleMania. So that's what I I thought was interesting. I don't know if you want to talk about how we feel about Drew moving forward. No, I'm I'm happy to talk about Drew going forward. I think that's an excellent point. You know, it just is weird to me that Braun Strowman is now being talked about as this kind of transition uh, character where only a month or so ago, this guy was being considered like the, you know, I hate to use a, a, the phrase, but the crown jewel of the company, right? Like they were kind of building around this guy. It's bizarre to me to see them turn about face so quickly here. Uh, if Braun could get himself healthy, I, I don't know why he would be so, I don't know why he would lose to Lesnar like that, only to, to set up Lesnar for Drew, as much as I think that makes sense. I just, you know, it just seems like there's a lot of value still left to be getting out of Braun. Well, it's just kind of interesting because they they basically squashed him at Crown Jewel, and then what happens after Crown Jewel? Will Strowman's the next challenger for for Brock Lesnar? He's going to be the challenger at the Royal Rumble. So, I I think that they still have high hopes for him, but I do think there is reason to believe that Strowman's really popular. But is Strowman going to be 
the guy? Is he going to be the big baby face you build around? Strowman, given his character, has some kind of natural limitations as far as what kind of matches he can be in and how much he can really sell and how much he can, you know. Strowman's gimmick is his invincibility. In yeah. The sense, yeah, and, and that's and kind of been taken... And he shouldn't have been running around doing a lot of this dangerous stuff that he's been doing. I feel like, you know, uh, the injuries and stuff he's dealing with right now, knees, bone spurs and everything, this guy's doing too much. You know, I looked at SmackDown last night and Big Show falling off the apron through that table full of food on the outside. I was like, come on. What are you doing with these big men right now? They don't need to be doing this stuff. These big, like, big shows up, you know, over 40 years old. You know, there's the elephant in the room that we haven't brought up yet is that, according to some reports, there is some heat on Braun in the locker room. Both people feel that he's potentially unsafe and also that he might not have the best attitude backstage. There was a report in The Observer, I think a couple of weeks ago, that said that Braun was, you know, showing up late for things and kind of didn't wasn't really getting along with everyone. And I don't know how true that is, but it would kind of be like, oh, maybe WWE is losing a little bit of confidence as far as pushing him that much because he hasn't necessarily played the role backstage the way that oh, management would like to see it. Well, the same, you're right about those reports from The Observer, but The Observer also reported this week that Brock and Nia Jax have apparently got heat in the locker room for just straight up being unsafe to work with in the ring. You know, they pointed to Nia, you know, putting Becky's face into the back of her head. And then, of course, Brock Lesnar a couple weeks ago, I think it may have been last week, when he was laying out the sings, dude, you, he, he straight up dropped, I think it was Sunil, right on the back of his head, man. You those know, poor I, sing boys, all those guys do is just get tossed around by large men and do all these risks. I mean, do you remember when, I think, I forget which one, but one of those things, like, he fell off the Punjabi prison, and he fell, like, probably legitimately, like, 15 feet through an announce table. And yes. They didn't even bother to move, like, the monitors off the announce table. He just, like, splatted right on it like it was unplanned. And those guys, all they do is just take these horrible bumps, and they're like, you know, nobody cares. It's, it's, it's bad. But, yeah, I mean... I thought what the, the Punjabi prison one that was fine. That I mean, it was a big fall, but he, the table broke his fall, and it looked that one looked not as bad as the the Lesnar well, suplexes. You know? you know, the thing about wrestling is you talk. I feel like there's a lot of talk about safety and who's safe and what is a safe style and all this kind of stuff. Wrestling's weird because things that we normally associate with being super dangerous oftentimes aren't super dangerous or end up being fine and things that seem routine and basic and safe are dangerous the lesnar you know lesnar gave sing a, a german suplex and maybe he flung him too far or maybe sing over rotated you know that's i feel like that's kind of something that just kind of happens in wrestling and maybe he should calm down a little bit but that's hard for me to get that upset about the Nia Jax thing is like this is like you're throwing a working forearm or you're throwing a working punch <laughs> punch and, yeah yeah like Man. and the, your your target isn't moving and like this is something that you should like routinely be able to do safe a thousand times out of a thousand like do you, but you know wrestling's weird you can get hurt off of doing stuff that you never thought you would get hurt of there was a spot in survivor series during the women's tag match where 
I think it was Bailey and Sonya Deville. It was definitely Sonya Deville. I forget who she was working with, but they kind of did like a like a fighting spot where they kind of tumbled out of the ring. And Sonya, like the way she exited through the middle rope, she like landed. It looked like she landed on the outside, like right on top of her head or right on the back of her head. Yeah. And she ended up being fine. But I remember seeing them like, you know, that could have been really bad. A few more inches and we could be talking about a broken neck. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard for me to really evaluate, you know, who's safe and who's unsafe because you can just get hurt doing so much different kind of stuff. I mean, Ricochet did a double moonsault off of the top of the cage and was totally fine. And, you know, Nia Jax threw a, a working, supposedly working punch at Becky Lynch and now Becky's out. So it's just, it's just weird, man. Well, as we're, as we're sitting here talking about, I want to get back to, to Brock and Braun a little bit. You know, with Brock, obviously there for financial reasons, it would largely seem right. Um, and with Braun on, you know, the shelf right now, I thought it was really interesting that this is the week they chose to start teasing Lars Sullivan coming to the main roster. They ran a, a trailer on raw. They ran a little teaser on, on SmackDown as well. Uh, is he going to, is he, do you think that he's somebody they're going to try to see if he can fit that mold of the Brock Braun type? Uh, he, uh, here's the thing about Sullivan. Unlike Braun, Lars has spent time in NXT working with guys that work that that style, that faster paced style that's now so common. I almost wonder if he's the kind of secret hybrid between Brock and Braun that might be able to, I don't know, fill that void right now that they're looking for. Lars is really big, obviously. I obviously WWE is going to call him up and I, they're going to give him some kind of push. I, you know, he's probably going to win his first few matches as a squash match, then maybe getting a feud with a lower mid card guy that he can beat a couple of times. I don't, I don't, you know, you make a good point, Nick, that maybe this is the kind of guy they bring in and they could give him a monster push right away. What is a better start for Lars Sullivan in WWE? He comes out and he beats no way Jose in 30 seconds like for for three straight weeks, or he comes out and he, you know, tosses around Baron Corbin or he tosses around Lesnar or something like that. And suddenly all of a sudden Daniel Bryan, right? I mean, that's the thing. Daniel Bryan's like seeking out monsters right now to bring the best out of him, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think you bring him in and you give him a monster push right away. Maybe he does take off and you have a new guy. It's hard because so many guys have come up from NXT and guys that are a lot more talented than Lars Sullivan. That's not a knock against Lars, but there are a lot of guys who have been way more experienced with way more things going for them and were bigger stars in NXT than Sullivan who have come onto the main roster and really done nothing. So it's hard to really estimate what he's doing, but he certainly from a physical standpoint has potential to do really well. When Braun came up from NXT, it wasn't like he was really good. He also never really I don't know someone can correct me but I don't think he ever appeared on NXT television he didn't he didn't when he showed up on on raw as part of the Wyatt family under that black sheep mask nobody knew who this guy was nobody and and when he came up yeah he was bad he was extremely green because he had never really worked on television before he only had a, a you know maybe a year or two of experience training at the performance center and you know what? He got over because WWE was really consistent with how they booked him. He rarely sold. He always won his matches. He was doing all these crazy superhuman feats of strength and doing all these gimmick kind of stuff. And WWE was very protective of him. And, you know, fans really like to watch really big guys kick a ton of ass. It's a universal truth in wrestling. So 
and he got over that way. And maybe if they book Lars the same way, I think he can get over. I, I think Strowman's a fine talent. I think it's fair to say that he doesn't really have individually a special level of charisma that connects him with the fans. He's just a big, strong guy that's booked really well. I don't know, man. I, you know, it's just so different now than, you know, six months ago. You know, remember when he had the big base and he was like squared off with Elias at the, at the top of the state? I mean, there's a charisma to, to Braun Strowman and they figured it out. Why they changed the plan is what I don't understand. I mean, you can almost point to the night where he aligned with Drew McIntyre and Dolph Ziggler. And for whatever reason, they decided to turn him into a heel that's almost, I, I mean, I can almost point to that exact moment is when this guy fell off the rails. You know, that was, a, that was a misstep right there, and it is one of those missteps I think you can point to that caused a lot more damage than I think that they would have expected. Well, if you remember, Nick, he turned heel because he turned heel right after Roman Reigns won the Universal Championship. And the yep. reason he turned heel was because they needed a heel to feud with their top babyface. And maybe they thought Drew wasn't ready or they were saving Drew, but they needed a top heel. And Raw had nobody on that heel side because, you know, everyone had kind of been sacrificed, pushed on the wayside so they could push Lesnar as the monster heel. So the logical thing for in their minds to do was to turn Strowman heel because the goal the, this entire time was to get Roman over as the top face in the company, not Braun Strowman with Roman out. The plan has kind of changed. They need Strowman to fill that void, but maybe, you know, it's too late for that because they've already kind of cooled Strowman off by having this heel turn. Yeah, it, it just didn't make any sense to me, you know, especially right now when they're strapped for baby faces. You know, I look at that, you know, what is the John Cena role? What is the Hulk Hogan role, right? It's the guy who can go out, who can do the Make-A-Wish, who can sell a ton of shirts. I see Braun Strowman as that guy. I don't know if Braun is going to show up on, on Jimmy Fallon and be able to sit down and have the, the best conversation, but – he can have a five-minute talk and then, you know, pull a 18-wheeler out in the parking lot to close the show on on stuff like that. I mean, it's just a different kind of charisma. Um, I think that he was. I think that he was. It is capable of being on that level. But now they got to work to get him back there. They had him there. I don't understand why they pulled back on him at all. I think it's just they needed him. They needed someone to feud with Reigns. The goal, like I said, the goal was always to get Reigns over as that guy, that Hulk Hogan and John Cena kind of role. And <sighs> Reigns, unfortunately, is in a position where he can't do that right now. So they need to push someone else. But maybe Strowman, maybe they should have, you know, earlier in this year, they should have been like, you know what? Reigns isn't the guy Strowman is. And they'd be better off for that right now. But that wasn't mm -hmm. the plan. So I feel like going back in hindsight, the, the last thing I feel like, I want to say about Strowman is that they did this. So on Sunday night, they did this big beatdown angle with Ronda Rousey. And then Rousey comes out on Monday night and she cuts this promo saying, you know, I'm a fighting champion. I'm a, you know, when you're the hero, you never take a beating and let it affect you. You're going to, you come bounce, bounce right back. And she came out and she didn't sell her injury and she beat uh, Mickey James squat, basically squashed Mickey and Ronda was the super baby face. And then on the flip side, you have Braun Strowman, who's supposed to be the male super baby face, and you do a beatdown angle with him. And now you're supposedly doing this angle where Strowman's going to miss a bunch of time. So on the same show, you have Ronda Rousey saying, you know, a super baby face, they never miss any time. They don't. It doesn't matter how bad their beatdown was, they're going to come out and they're going to fight. And now we're going to get several weeks where Strowman's not on Raw because he got beat down. So I thought that was kind of mixed messaging as far as the stories they're trying to tell. Yeah, Ronda's saying some stuff 
I mean, I know it's like they they want to give her freedom to write her own stuff and use her own voices, but a, a lot of her stuff, I feel like, is not really doing her any favors. I don't think it's helping get over the talent around her either. You know, one of the big things that I was always taught, you know, when I was learning how to cut promos as a manager and stuff was, you know, make your opposition sound as imposing as possible, right? Yeah, get them over. One. Yeah, so that when you beat them, it means more. Uh, Rhonda can't stop crap talking uh, everybody around her, and I don't think she's elevating anybody with what she's saying right now. Yeah, I mean, if you want to shift into the kind of talking about Rhonda, I think I wrote this in my review after Survivor Series. I think Rhonda should be should eventually turn heel, and the MMA four horse woman should be a heel group. They're already a heel group in NXT minus Rhonda. And that the Becky and the Charlotte group should be the babyface group. It makes way more sense that way for Ronda to come out and basically say, you know, I didn't know wrestling was going to be this easy. I'm buzzsawing through everyone. No one can stop me. All the everyone else on the roster is pathetic. And then obviously someone steps up and stops her. I I really wasn't a fan of the just dumping on millennials that Ronda did. I think it's very odd. You know, when I first heard that, now we've gotten some reports that say, you know, Rhonda's been writing her promos. Heyman has been helping her. When I heard her just being like, millennials do this and that, I'm like, oh, man, that sounds like Vince talking. But I also thought it was kind of a mistake to just dump on a group of people. And now, granted, I'm a millennial. I don't know, Nick, if you classify as millennial. Um, I'm an old millennial, Jesse. Yeah. I'm right at the cusp. So yeah, I'm think, there with you. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm on, the, I'm on like the younger side. I think the cutoff is like 96, and I was born mm -hmm. in 94. But anyway, so yes, this is coming from the perspective of a millennial. But the 18 to 34 demographic are maybe not the, the biggest chunk of WWE fans, but if you go – in anyone that's been to a live event or these people that are traveling for WrestleMania and all these big shows, people who are spending a lot of money that are really hardcore fans, a lot of them are millennials and do fit into that demographic. And I feel like it's kind of weird that your baby face is just going to decide to dump on a group of people. And I thought that was a really strange promo. And if you were going to, you know, trying to piss off the Becky Lynch fans and make them want to cheer for Becky or Charlotte when she's beating down Ronda Rousey, then I think you would do a good job by just insulting the wide-ranging group of people. That's how it me as press babyface promo. I'm with you, man. And Rhonda, Rhonda's got go-away heat with me right now for that because I think those were her words. I think that's something that she wanted to work in there would be my guess. I mean, she seems uh, rather conservative, uh, I would say, in some of her uh, leanings. And and truthfully, you know, this, this anti-millennial, especially anti-millennial men – uh, diatribe is largely an alt-right. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to get political here, but that, that, that soybean eating, avocado toast eating, this is proud boy stuff, man. I mean, I don't want to necessarily, but I mean, I don't want to necessarily compare her to that, but this is the same kind of vernacular you're hearing from a, from a lot of the, uh, more far right wing of stuff right now. And you tie that in with her defending the, the Saudi crown jewel stuff and all that. It's a very, it's very weird. It's just weird. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, you know, you're talking about how she's putting off the millennials and how people that travel, you know, do, do they want to see her and all that type stuff? Um, she's still Ronda Rousey. There's a ton of money to be made in Ronda Rousey. I don't know why you go out there and try to toe this line. I mean, I get it. Becky came out of nowhere, whatever, but there's better ways for Ronda to be carrying herself right now where you could be making a lot more money in my opinion. Yeah. I never... I never really thought about it that way. I think that Rhonda, yeah, there's tons. She's still, she's a really popular babyface, but I think these last 
you know, after the millennial promo and kind of with the promo on Monday that she is kind of a, she's, this is what a heel, I think a, a heel would do. And I think this is someone that wants the fans to cheer against her, <laughs> you know, lumping a, a whole group of people, uh, you know, into your promo. I mean, that seems, that's pretty bad. Like as far as just, it wouldn't be something that I would try to do if I was trying to get over as a babyface, certainly, or even as a heel, it should be like, Oh, what if you just like, oh, everyone over the age of 55, they're all lazy. They won't, you know, they're doing this and that. And they're, you know, you would never cut. Like, if you cut that promo, you're just offending a group of people for really no reason. And, and, I thought and, that, and, and also, like, I believe by birth year, I think Rhonda is a millennial. Yes, she is. She's a millennial female. And uh, it's like, what am I supposed to do? Take pot shots at millennial females here? I don't get it. Um, I, I will... I will take a little bit of a devil's advocacy stance here on this and say that if you look back at the Attitude Era, the comments that were made about women were uh, not so great. You know, um, yeah, there's a lot of the Attitude Era that has not aged well. Right. And so I do wonder if this isn't a little bit of comeuppance, right? Like women felt uncomfortable watching wrestling for so long because of the way women were portrayed or talked about. I... I weirdly think that there is some just desserts here in the fact that men are now like, how dare you talk about us like this? You know, there is, you know, there is a part of me that, that does understand it from that perspective. Uh, but it's just, you know, there's, there's too many weird sub subtext here that it just feels wrong to me. And I, and then the reason I, I bring that up too, is because I did spend Sunday night with the Godfather here in Chicago, uh, watching survivor series and listen to him talk about how he's like so like shocked to see where the women are now, considering the fact that you know his whole gimmick was, uh, you know, uh, subjugated pimp. women. Yeah, he's a pimp, yeah. right? You know, like, and it was not subtle. No, he's a pimp. He's an actual pimp. You know, uh, it was, it was. I, I do think there is something to be said about the fact that oh, men, you don't like being talked about like this. Well, you know. Look at the history of wrestling and how women have been talked about as well. How, but how she's wild not feuding with the thing is she's not feuding with the fan. She's supposedly feuding with Becky Lynch. Right. So I don't really maybe she's feuding with the fans who cheer for Becky Lynch, who I I, I suppose could be mostly millennial aged men, but it seems to be most of the audience at this point. Uh you know, I don't really I, I just like I said, like I don't really get it from a baby paced perspective. It's very confusing what they're doing with this kind of triangle of Becky, Charlotte, and Rhonda. I, I, I know that everybody keeps saying four horsemen, four horsemen, WrestleMania. For me, I think, and I don't know if they do it at Rumble or if they hold up until Mania, but Charlotte, Becky, Rhonda, triple threat, far more compelling bout to me right now than a four horsemen versus four horsemen. Because you got to get, you got to get the two other girls, Jasmine and uh, what's the, it's Jasmine and Marina. Um, Marina. They got to get up. They got to be up to the, they got to get up to the level of performing at that level in a short amount of time. You got to reheat up Sasha and Bailey to get them involved in that. You have three compelling characters here in Charlotte, Becky and Rhonda. There's ways you could kind of keep them apart. One on, you know, handicapped, somebody's on commentary type deal until you get to mania. And then it's who here is the man. Is it Rhonda? Is it Charlotte? Or is it Becky? And that's a much more compelling direction for me than trying to make a horsewoman feud happen. Can I ask you what you thought? What did you think about Charlotte's promo last night? 
I thought and the how words Becky responded to it. I, I thought the words from Charlotte did seem a little contrived, uh, especially the I stomped on her neck a zillion times line. I thought that was just a little silly. But the presence, the tone, the tenor uh, of Charlotte right now is where I want her to be. The words probably need to catch up a little bit, but I like this Charlotte. I like the scary Charlotte with an edge. I like the gray area Charlotte, much more compelling to me. Her beatdown of Rousey was the most interesting I think she's ever been to me. That was like, whoa, this is a well, you know, this is a real welcome change for Charlotte, who character-wise had maybe grown a little bit stale. And now yeah. she has this new attitude. And I, you know, the fans loved it. I thought the reactions on social media to Charlotte's promo were interesting as far as people saying that, oh, she just ripped off Becky. WWE is just taking Becky's heat and giving it to Charlotte. And, you know, Dave said on, on Wrestling Observer Radio that they want Charlotte to be at the level, like Ronda's over, Becky's over. They want Charlotte to be at that level. Good. And I think that's an inch, but I think that's an interesting dynamic because if the Becky Lynch fans, enough of them believe that WWE's just giving Charlotte all of Becky's lines and playing the role of Becky Lynch, and they, <coughs> they're not gonna, that's just gonna lead to more pushback against Charlotte, which is I think fine because Charlotte's I think supposed to be the heel anyway. That's a minority opinion in my in my in my from my perspective. I think that that's a minority opinion that the fans are all so smart that they know that WWE is trying to pass off Becky's gimmick to Charlotte. I don't think it plays that way. I think Charlotte, I think Charlotte got her ass kicked for three months by Becky and and, uh, Becky and Rhonda was going to be a hot match because Charlotte bent over backwards to get Becky to that level. And Becky's not there. Charlotte had to go into that match and you saw a rabid dog with nowhere left to go lash out and she followed up on that same energy on SmackDown and I think that's what the casual fan sees I don't think the casual fan sees oh they're trying to make Charlotte into Becky I just think they see a woman with an axe to grind acting aggressively and she's a more compelling character for it you know Nick this touches on a very fundamental interesting thing that I have as a as a wrestling fan and someone that really you know closely follows wrestling news and obviously talks and writes about it uh, as a, as for a living. And as you, you, you have the same perspective as I do. Sometimes it's hard for me to sometimes figure out if something, whether it's uh, someone getting over or a movement or a thought, if it just exists within the the IWC, the internet wrestling community, or just like the hardcore kind of fans that I generally associate myself with, or if it is for the masses at large. Mm-hmm. For, for, you know. I saw on social media that Becky Lynch was getting a lot of support from fans. And, okay, that's fine. But I, it was hard for me to figure out just how serious people were about that and how many people actually felt that way. Survivor Series was a real eye-opener. Like, the heat that Nia Jax got just for being involved in the Becky's injury, that wasn't just, uh, you know, 15% of the audience booing her or 20% or just a small amount of fans who spent a lot of time online. That was the majority of fans. Yep. So it's hard to, it's, you know, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like from our perspective, it's hard to figure out what do we think and what do people we talk to think that are obviously huge, enormous wrestling fans and what do just the normal fans who are at shows think and how much of that translates because ultimately it matters what the masses are doing, not a small segment of the pop of the, of the fan base. 
I, I agree. I think there are there are some breadcrumbs here that led the fans to acting like that that were not uh, – you had to go on a, a dirt sheet to find out about what's going on backstage here. They showed you clearly on the SmackDown before Survivor Series, Nia Jax threw this punch, knocked out Becky Lynch. She's off the card because of Nia Jax. You didn't have to go read the Observer Newsletter to know that was the case. They told you, right? Yeah. And you, you compile that with the fact that when you get into an arena, and granted, you know, you're at Survivor Series, you're surrounded by people that have flown in from all over the world. They're the, some of the smartest fans. But even for the casual fans that brought their kids or whatever, they see everybody else is hot. They kind of know why they're hot because they saw it on SmackDown, and they join in. You know, yeah. that's one of those That's one of those kind of 50-50s in my, in my case here. I don't think that... It's 50-50 in the sense that fans are thinking, oh, Charlotte's trying to be the new Becky. I think it's 80-20, and 80% of the fans just see a woman who is at the bottom of the barrel emotionally and is lashing out to try to, to, try to you know, put herself back on top of the mountain. Personally, that's how I think that's playing to the to the general fans. Yeah, and we'll, we'll you know that's all good points, Nick. I think we'll we'll see how how the fans react. I thought it was interesting that Becky on Twitter. I don't know if you saw someone during during um during SmackDown. Someone asked, "Oh, Be- I wonder if they tweeted at Becky Lynch and said, "Oh, I wonder if we're going to see the man tonight on SmackDown." And Becky responded, "I already was on. Apparently, I've been fined a hundred thousand dollars, and I beat uh, Billy Kay and Peyton Royce." <laughs> which yeah. was her kind of acknowledging that oh charlotte's playing my role now yeah and you know maybe maybe this is one of those things where they can take a uh you know something off twitter that a, a handful of hardcore fans are are, are saying it and turn it into something but i just think it's gonna be a harder story to tell i mean charlotte is a more three-dimensional character now i think she does need to find her voice a bit like becky has but the intensity uh, is there the unpredictability is there and that's what makes a character great and charlotte feels unpredictable right now yeah she's um, way more exciting uh let's let's switch it up here we'll get off ronda and becky let's talk uh keeping on the vein of survivor series daniel bryan we got a new direction for daniel bryan he won the title he turned heel he uh, took on brock lesnar largely got his ass kicked uh at survivor series comes out on smackdown and says, I wanted to get my ass kicked. I needed to come out a stronger person on the other side of this. Uh, and now he's going to go on and face AJ at TLC. What do you think of the new Daniel Bryan? I thought the Survivor Series match was really interesting because Daniel Bryan wrestled the match as a super babyface. I know people can say, oh, he was stalling in the beginning and he hit Lesnar with a low blow. That was a babyface performance from Bryan. Like, as good as one anyone you'll see all year from any wrestler as far as, you know, a, an underdog babyface fighting against a much larger, stronger opponent. I think heel Brian, you know, I don't think Daniel has ever gotten enough credit for his charisma and his promo ability. People see a guy who's a really good technical wrestler that got a catchphrase and a hand motion over, but I think he is really, really smart at how to connect with an audience and i'm really interested apparently he's been pitching a heel turn to vince mcmahon for several months he finally got accepted and now he's the heel champion and i think he is he's one of the most creative people in wrestling and i'm very excited to see what he's doing his promo on smackdown was like i said it's really about interest it's not necessarily about heel or babyface fans react to whoever's entertaining them in Brian's character right now is extremely entertaining. 
Yeah, I, I think so too. It's a good change of pace for him. Um, I hope the fans go along for this ride. I do wonder if they will. People really like Daniel Bryan, so I guess well, time will tell. AJ's a good opponent for him because I think you'll you'll we'll get a dynamic at TLC where we'll see the crowd kind of split 50-50, which I think is great. I think that's like the best part about wrestling is when the crowd is relatively split because then it feels like real sports. If you go to uh, you know, the Super Bowl, chances are there's gonna be there's not gonna be all the fans are cheering for one team and booing against another. It's gonna be 50-50 or if you go to a UFC fight or a boxing match or anything like that. It feels like real sports when you have that 50-50 split. And I think AJ is a guy that plenty of fans will still be cheering for. You know, if if Brian was working against a weaker baby face, you know, if he was working against maybe Rey Mysterio or I'm trying to think of other people on SmackDown that would kind of fit the role as potential title contender or maybe Rusev. Uh, yeah, Rusev's a good one. Like you'll still get a lot of people cheering for for Brian. And maybe not as many, not a lot of people cheering for the supposed babyface in the angle. But I think AJ is a good opponent. And honestly, I don't think it really matters if people still cheer for Brian at this point. He's, you know, he's going to sell merchandise. He's going to be over with the fans no matter what, even if he doesn't do the yes chant. So I don't think it's really a big deal, like, if the fans are still cheering for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, even if he's just a heel, you know, if the heel's over and the heel's selling merch and the heel is drawing eyeballs and the heel is selling tickets then it doesn't really matter if he's, uh, you know, being booed. Uh, well, let's uh, let's compare and contrast here. Daniel Bryan, AJ, on the other side, you got Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins. Uh, obviously, the line Dean Ambrose said on Raw about Roman getting cancer because of his time spent in the Shield uh, ruffled a lot of feathers. I kind of went off on this earlier today on the Wrestling Inc. Uh, Wednesday podcast. So you can all go listen to me talk about why I'm so upset about that line myself. But uh, what did you think about where Dean went with that? Does this make you any more hooked for Dean Ambrose versus Seth Rollins? It doesn't create interest for me. I get, I I think for other fans, maybe look at it and be like, oh, the intent is, oh, Dean said that. Seth's going to be really mad right now. I got to see Seth get his revenge because Dean crossed the line. I'm assuming they did it with Roman Reigns' approval. Unfortunately, this is part of wrestling. If it was up to me, I wouldn't have something like that in the promo. I think there's plenty of stuff that a heel Dean Ambrose can say without, you know, stooping to that level and bringing in that level of real life um, personal problems. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really, for me personally, it doesn't really create the interest. What matters is if it creates interest with amongst the wide fan base. I don't think it's really going to work. You no, know, dude, I, 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 I hate to cut you off. I don't think this does anything for anybody other than have them look their down their noses at pro wrestling for lacking tact and class. Yeah, well, I was talking to uh, a coworker who's a big wrestling fan, and I was saying, you know, there is an awkward level to this where Ambrose drop, brings this into the feud. Oh, you know, Roman's got to answer to the man upstairs for being part of the Shield, obviously alluding to his cancer diagnosis. And it kind of puts the fan, like me, in an awkward position because, like, oh, now I have to react to this. Like, I'm supposed to be really mad that Dean said this. And it's just, like, something that I don't really want to have to think about. It's a moral choice that I don't want to have to make. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to have to think about this. That's the – you just nailed it, Jesse. I don't right? want to think about this. Yes, I don't. Right. Like, I, there's plenty of material. Dean can be a great heel just, you know, talking you know, talking about how much he hated the Shield without bringing in that level of – 
real life problems to it. It's well, the same way with, you know, I, I, I mentioned this to you on Twitter yesterday, because obviously Randy Orton and Rey Mysterio seem to be going for with a feud like, you know, as long as Randy Orton isn't saying that Eddie Guerrero is in hell, I'm fine with it. But when you do stuff like that, it becomes, oh, this is not something that I want to really associate with at all. Yeah, and, you know, that is a decision that is remembered poorly. And also a decision that many people that were involved said we could have maybe done without and got to where we needed to be. You know, it's not one of those things that's remembered because it yeah, I don't know if it's so critical well. to the storytelling here. No, it's not. And on a... And on a different point altogether, and I don't really want to talk this to death because I said this earlier on the, the week podcast, WWE does a lot of make-a-wish stuff, right? Yeah. There, there are a lot of kids Great dealing— Great point, Nick. I know what you're going to say, but yeah. Dealing with cancer right now that are watching Monday Night Raw as an escape, period. Now, some little kid in a cancer wing is told that Roman Reigns got cancer because he was with The Shield. What does that tell that little kid about his support of the shield? Right? They're what does not that tell? Old... Yeah, yeah, what does it tell all kids? They're not old enough to comprehend the nuances of a wrestling storyline. It is a messed up thing to have said, and I think completely off the mark, personally. I, I so. hadn't thought about that, Nick, but that's a great point and has converted my opinion on it, that that really is something that, you just don't say it's so unnecessary too. That's the thing. This is not a critical. This wasn't a critical component. The entire storyline does not have to be built and, on and on this. That that is why it is different from Natalia and Ruby Riot because kids are like, oh wow, Ruby Riot offended Natalia by going after her dad. But guess what? Three weeks later, Natalia tapped her out, picked up the glasses, and walked away. And everyone goes, yay! Little kids didn't have to sit there questioning why they have a life-threatening illness right now because of their support of the Shield. It is apples and oranges to me. They yep. are not even close to the same thing. Anyway, no. I'll, I'll hop off this. I'm, I'm going to get all hot again. Um, the, uh, the last couple things I had coming out of Survivor Series, we're going to talk TakeOver at the end of the show here for a couple minutes and, and tell you guys why we think it works so well. We also got a couple uh, indie stories we're going to touch on here real briefly before we get to our interviews. Um, but the last two things coming out of Survivor Series, first of all, Drake Maverick peed himself. Cost himself some uh, caused himself some embarrassment there and the loss for his team, I guess. Uh, do you, do you like the the Drake, Drake Maverick AOPP stuff? Uh, I'm gonna tell you that I don't like it, Nick. I know it's probably <laughs> a big surprise. <laughs> I just think it. I know it's I know it's dumb. I don't think it draws any money, but it's a stupid, silly thing. I don't really care. You know, it's, it's, it's stupid. I don't think it's going to help. Like ALP is supposed to get over as a big, like a fear. You're supposed to be afraid of ALP. They're a big tag team. Now, if everyone starts chanting ALPP, it's not going to do them any favors. The tag division, I mean, the tag division on, in, on Raw and SmackDown, but especially Raw, like it wasn't that long ago where tag team wrestling was a huge strength for WWE. And now it's just, oh, it's bad. Yeah, dude. It was two months ago. Everyone was like, man, SmackDown's tag team is awesome. Tag team division is awesome. So much better than that jokey Raw division. Now you, you got the, the New Day in the bar rolling around in gravy and mashed potatoes on Tuesday night. Bizarre. Yeah, it's rough. It's it's rough. I don't like it. Uh, lastly here, uh, I, I was debating bringing it up, but I guess we have to because it's all anybody was talking about come Monday morning. Enzo Amore snuck into Survivor Series, tried to steal the show during the AOPP match, and was uh, abruptly booted. He was also booted from a flight for vaping. He also did a concert at Whiskey A Go Go in L.A. at like midnight on Monday, 
and ranted about not being able to grab the brass ring. Uh, Enzo Amore, where do you see this guy in a month? Enzo Amore is really stupid, and he just wants attention. That is all my comments about Enzo Amore. Great. Let's chat about uh, some indie news here. We'll try to touch on these topics here um, since we're a little short on time, and I do want to talk TakeOver a bit at the end of the show. Uh, WrestlingNews.co, we're the first to report this. Uh, we've been doing a follow-up on it this morning. I know Pro Wrestling, she just also chimed in on it as well. But a new entity has emerged called All Elite Wrestling LLC, and it is looks like it's tied to uh, the Jaguars co-owner uh, Tony Khan. And very interesting trademarks filed here in the past week. Uh, All Elite Wrestling, Double or Nothing, AEW, Double or Nothing, AEW All Out, All Out, AEW, and also Tuesday Night Dynamite. It sure as hell looks like in 2019, the Elite is launching a pro wrestling promotion, doesn't it now? The the trademark names are definitely interesting. Uh, There's been talk, you know, there's been talk for years and years about uh, extremely wealthy person really going all in and investing in a wrestling promotion. And maybe that was going to, you know, Mark Cuban's been rumored. Maybe Ted Turner will come back. But Tony Khan, who's the son of Shad Khan, who owns the Jaguars, who's a billionaire, has owns multiple sports enterprises. I believe he's in the process of acquiring Wembley Stadium. Like he's going to buy Wembley Stadium. I think he was going to buy it. And then there was some snaggy hit and maybe he isn't buying it anymore. But he's a very successful business person. To me, Nothing is definite unless they announce a big TV deal. There's plenty of wrestling promotions out there that have taped for television and have st- said, "Oh, we're gonna make you know we're gonna make a big splash," and they can't get TV, and nothing ever really comes out of it. So, uh, you know, when they if they announce a big TV deal, then we're then we can start talking. If the elite announce that they're going there, and I have no idea where those guys are going, except I feel pretty confident that's not going to be WWE. I, if I were to bet money, I would say they're going to continue in the same position as working for Ring of Honor in New Japan, maybe with some a few different changes here and there. If they're starting their own promotion, I mean, man, that is a lot. That well, is a but, huge undertaking. Now, here's the thing is we don't know how long they've been putting this together. We don't really know what the backroom conversations are. I know from people I've talked to, uh, and I've been kind of coy about this the past couple months, uh, I was told a couple months ago, very straightforward, this is happening from somebody that I trust. Uh, I was told directly also by them, it involves the Jacksonville Jaguars guy. Uh, Everything that dropped in the past 24 hours uh, fully confirmed what I have been hearing. And uh, I'll take it a step further and throw out there that I have also heard that there are plans and, you know, just great assault. I haven't confirmed this uh, for four all in events next year. Uh, One possibly at Madison square garden, one possibly at the Staples center, um, one possibly at, I believe it was the United Center, and then a fourth yet to be determined. So if what I just said plays out, I want you all to remember, uh, I say things throughout the show sometimes uh, that, you know, uh, you may see coming back around. So that's what I think is happening here. I think this is going to be a much, much bigger story in 2019 than many people would even believe. Oh, uh, would if, be. If, if this is real, I mean, if it's real, if the elite... The group of the elite, if they are teaming up with the Khan family and they are starting their own wrestling promotion, this is the biggest wrestling news story. But think about since, all the since think, since since WCW closed. Think I mean, about think about think about all the times you've heard 
All of these contracts are coming up January 1st. Who are they going to sign with? Ring of Honor, New Japan, WWE. What if the answer to that is none of the above? Right? Yeah, there's, this, a, you know, there's you all know, sorts of, there's all sorts of, like you said, breadcrumbs being dropped. You know, if you watch Being the Elite, uh, if you follow Cody Rhodes on Twitter and just the kind of the, the things he says about wrestlers needing to band together and no one's going to look out for you except yourself. And maybe part of that's a gimmick and part of that is his real thoughts. There's a lot. It's, it's easily the most interesting story in wrestling is what, where these guys are going to go. Yeah. Talk so we'll put up. up. Yeah. yeah, we'll put a we'll put a pin in it there because again, we're just speculation right now. Again, I'm just telling you guys what I've heard, but uh, this is going to be a huge story, and we may even do a breaking podcast special here if uh, something more firm happens. Uh, over the weekend, uh, there wasn't just Survivor Series and Takeover. There were some blood and guts. Uh, Joey Jella's L.A. Confidential featured a main event: David Arquette versus Nick Gage. I'm sure everybody's heard all about this. Arquette uh, got gigged in the throat nearly bled out, uh, immediately reached out to my friends at GCW. Uh, I was told Arquette didn't talk to anybody backstage afterwards, didn't talk to Brett uh, Lauderdale, the promoter, didn't talk to Nick Gage, his opponent, didn't talk to anybody. The only person he did talk to was 90s heartthrob Luke Perry, who he jumped in the car with, and I guess they went off to the hospital together. So uh, Arquette was, from all accounts that I've heard, very hot. I've heard crazed as a descriptive of him backstage after that. But uh, fortunately, within 48 hours, the dust settled. David Arquette put out a nice statement saying that he takes responsibility for his actions. And uh, no heat with Nick Gage, uh, GCW. And we just won't be seeing David Arquette doing uh, these types of bouts anymore. Uh, You know, good on him for handling it the right way. I, if you've ever been to an indie show, if you've ever been in an indie locker room, guys get asked to do stuff all the time that they've never done before. Sometimes it works. Sometimes stuff like this happens. David Arquette is still green comparatively, but he knows what he's doing. He's been around the business. I hear the complaints about how the promoter should have not put him in this position, but David Arquette knew full well what he was getting into, learned his lesson, and fortunately was not hurt worse than he was. Yeah, well, so. to me, Ar- I mean, David Arquette was not a, a, you know, a guy that sets up the ring and then is asked, oh, can you do this for us? This was someone that was brought in for a hyped match who knew what what he was getting into. At least he thought he knew what he was getting into. Um, and, you know, you know, deathmatch wrestling is a unique entity and <laughs> stuff can go wrong pretty easily. And I'm not surprised that you know, he was really mad about it because he could have gotten extremely injured. Uh, but, you know, that's just part, that's just part of it. I, I, you know, Arquette is, he's trying to get out there and he's trying to earn props from wrestling fans who, you know, and, and he is a big wrestling fan and he's been kind of the butt of jokes and been a punchline for the last 20 years. So he's trying to get some respect from the fans. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this is the best way to. to uh, I think I, I think it worked, you know. I think oh, yeah. he definitely earned respect, you know. You know, people only only really the ignorant would ever like blame David Arquette for anything that happened in WCW. He was just a, a wrestling fan, and they said, "Hey, you want to win the world title?" You know, if I were to appear on an episode of Raw and they said, "Hey, Jesse, we're gonna put the world title on you," I would be like, "Oh, awesome! <laughs> that's that's great!" And I remember as a little kid thinking, "Wow, I now get to live vicariously through David Arquette because I'm just a normal looking dude, yeah. and maybe I could be champion someday," yeah. you know. 
So uh, this turned out well. There was another incident over the weekend that did not turn out well. Uh, I've never heard of either of these two people, though I'm less frequent, fluent in Lucha Libre. Angel O. Demonio took on Cuervo at a Lucha Memes, Lucha Libre Boom co-pro show in Puerto Rico. I guess Dominio didn't like some of the chair shots Cuervo had uh, dished out on him, so he decided to throw a brick at Cuervo's head, uh, resulted in a horrible injury to Cuervo, uh, and because of that, Dominio has been suspended indefinitely from performing in Mexico ever again. Good. This was classless. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, if for those of you, for anyone who hasn't seen it, this was a deathmatch style match, not unlike the Nick Gage and David Arquette match. When I saw the video, I thought that he was trying to hit him in the shoulder and missed and hit him in the head. Uh, that might not be the case. Maybe he was aiming for his head. If he did, if he did, that was of course inexcusable. But if you watch a lot of these deathmatch stuff, and I have, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of them, but I've seen enough of them, especially on these smaller shows. These guys do just some the most insane, crazy stuff, and it's amazing to me that this kind of stuff doesn't happen more often. With given some of the, the stuff I've seen with guys taking all sorts of bumps onto broken glass and guys flying through the air and fire and all of this stuff, it's a, it's a whole different world out there. All right. Well, you know what? I have a couple items, but we've run a little long here, Jesse, so I'll throw them into my run sheet for next week. For those of you that did get to hear us talk about how Ellsworth may or may not have sent naked photos to a minor or the return of Kid Shamrock, tune in next week. But let's get to some interviews here. I'll bring Jesse back here at the end of the show. We're going to talk TakeOver real quick. Um, right now, you're going to hear from MLW's Court Bauer. He is the owner-proprietor of MLW. After him, you're going to hear a clip from me talking to Johnny Impact or John Hennigan, uh, about his most recent elimination from the television show Survivor. And following Johnny, we've got a long, full interview with the director of the Marine Six, James Nunn. I am joined by Glenn Rubenstein for that interview. It's great. On the other side of those three, I'll be back with Jesse to talk a little takeover, wrap the show up. But with that, let me throw it right now to my chat. Oh, and I got to set this up, too. I connected with Court. I started recording a little bit early. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not. I didn't know this until Raj told me. Court used to work or write for Wrestling Inc. Oh, so before of, we, Court's a longtime friend of the site. <laughs> he is. So uh, while I was recording to start the interview, he starts talking about that, and I said, "Hey, let the interview has already started. We're just going to start going." So I'm going to throw to this interview right now with Court, and you're going to hear Court immediately start talking about his history writing for Wrestling Inc. For Wrestling Inc. Yeah, it was a different thing. It was Pro Wrestling Gazette. It was a newsletter, and when this was like 1996, 1997. So it wasn't exactly this. Uh, it was it was something. It was the uh, it, it was whatever came before Raj reinvented it. Pro Wrestling Gazette. Uh, well, this is when OneWrestling.com was uh, was a newsletter. They didn't even have a website. So it was when everyone had newsletters. Um, you know, there was like a few of them. There was something called like the Bagpipe Report, mm-hmm. uh, and this was like the evolution of the newsletter that Meltzer would write, and 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 it was electronic and it was instantaneous during the Monday Night War, and then, and then everything kind of just went all in on the website, and no one gets a newsletter now. 
Yeah, well, you know, the Wrestling Observer newsletter, and you can't see it, but I'm doing the bunny ears quotations, right? Right. It's, it's not really a newsletter. But that's still like the hippest form of news. That's where everybody gets their news dump from once a week, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still it's still there. I think most people don't directly access it. They go to a site that will break it down and give you a small burst of information, then you needing to commit to reading it in the original form and it takes a lot of time you know but it's, it's a different era you know it's it's people want to have digestible news they don't want to sit down and read the front and to the back of a newspaper can we i already had this recording can i use this can i just start i think this is a fascinating convo can we just go with this or no <laughs> go with it yeah okay. I, I, just my theories about uh the evolution of media i guess well but that's that's why i wanted to just roll with this here because you know obviously with mlw i'm sure all the stuff you've learned over the past 20 something years about how media has evolved i mean how is that affecting the way that you're presenting mlw well it, it, there's just more options for it uh Back in you know 1996 or 2002, uh, no matter the era, uh, you had only a few pipelines to getting your product out there, and and it either made or broke you. you know, if you look at ECW, I mean, they had a system where they were uh, doing barter TV deals, which means they were swapping ad time for being on air uh, and splitting up that ad time with a network on a local regional sports network. Or they were paying to be on some stations. I mean, that right there would just to to get out of that hole and 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 be in the black was challenging. Um, and now you have technology. You know, you have incredible uh, platforms. You know, whether it, you you can close a deal and be on Hulu, or you're on YouTube, or you have other things like Twitch. Uh, there's there's all these different places to get the product out there. And we were lucky enough to come along, and I was able to close a deal with BN Sports to be on national TV. Um, within the first six months of the the relaunch of our league, which uh, really made this this venture viable. Uh, without that, you know, it, it probably would have been a different model. But it might have been a, a, a just as uh, uh, possible, uh, viable as a model. Just different. You know, you're, you're operating at a different level um, when you have national TV than when you have a uh, maybe your video on demand business model, which is certainly viable. It's just all scalable. And that's what I love about wrestling. If you're an entrepreneur, it's, it's fully scalable. It's just, you have to be able to, to understand what you're doing in scaling it. So you, you're in the black, you're not in the red. And, and today it's so much easier because you have platforms like pivot share, which has been huge for a lot of indie uh, companies. If there was no pivot share, uh, it might be different, you know. If there's no YouTube, it might be different. Uh, so it's just a different time in wrestling, uh, and I think there's never been a better time in wrestling, based on just the talent alone, and also the ways to get the content out there to to fans that want to just continue to jump into wrestling and have it a la carte. Now, now my question is, you know, obviously there's a lot of money being made, like you say, Pivot Share. Uh, there's some mm -hmm. other entities. There's like Powerbomb.tv. You've got Fight.tv. Mm -hmm. Um, there are more platforms for wrestling. So what is the value of a television show now? That's that's what I'm, you know, TV seems to be going away and the internet is taking the place of it. Uh, how important is it to that be in relationship? Oh, it's very important. Um, we've done two specials with them. Uh, the rights fees alone uh, make MLW uh, on this level, on this scale, viable. Um, we wouldn't be operating in this space at this at this level without BN. Um, the 
exposure. It, you, you're, you, in, uh, when you're on the internet, it, people, ha it's like word travels, word of mouth, and everything, and, and you're definitely easy to be, you know, to to have access to. But people have to know you exist. There's so much in that sea of the internet. Whereas when you're on national TV and you're 55 million homes, you have uh, – strategically, it's great for us because we have English and Spanish. We have two shows every week, one in Spanish, one in English, which I think WWE is the only company in the US that has that. But when you're able to reach that many households and there's still a lot of dudes that just – they're not on the computer every night. Uh, they may be on their phone. They're checking Facebook, but they have the TV on, and they're just flipping the channels, and they see BN. Uh, it's, it's definitely helped us. Uh, grow our footprint. Um, it, it we wouldn't have had the growth we had and enjoyed the success we've had without BN Sports. There's no way. Uh, it's been a huge accelerator for us. And then you have the people just find out word of mouth on YouTube, uh, where our show airs every Saturday night at 6:05. Uh, that 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 will watch it because either they don't get BN or they're somewhere else in the world, and that's been very helpful as a second wave of awareness. But it's 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 important. It's it's also important for us in terms of credibility. When you're on national TV. It gets easier to close deals for sponsors. Like right now, after I do this podcast, I'm jumping in a meeting uh, about a liquor sale uh, to do a sponsorship. So those things probably wouldn't be as prevalent if if I was just doing video on demand. Um, you would have a different, more grassrootsy model. And I also have the ability to have a national TV campaign at least two times a year from BN. That those things just help me make people where we exist. I mean, that's. At this point in our operation, that is the most the most critical thing that people know we are here um, because we are a startup. Maybe people inside diehard fans know we exist, but Joe Sixpack doesn't. And and hitting that casual fan base is so critical for the future growth of, of a company like MLW. A lot of times when I talk about MLW and BN's relationship, you know, it gets compared to the relationship between Impact and Pop. What do you? What are the differences there? Uh, you think in the way that you guys are working with your platform as opposed to the way Impact is working with Pop? I, I have no insight on what Pop and Impact's relationship is, other than what I what I see online, and I, I don't know, so I can't really compare. Other than um, they're both national TV deals, I can't even compare the the particulars to their deal because I don't know what their deal entails. I don't know if they're getting paid or if it's completely barter or what. Um, I just know what my deal is and that BN for us has been incredible partners. Um, uh, it's it's For me, it was important to have uh, someone that understood wrestling uh, and knew that it, it takes time to grow a property. You're not going to be able to go anywhere near huge numbers because everyone's going to go to the the, the market leader, WWE, what are they doing and in, 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 in compare to, well, why are you – you better do those numbers. And that's that wasn't the case with BN. They understood where we are with this new era of MLW. They understood uh, the unique nature of our model because we have uh, the podcast network to cross-market uh, MLW at the league with, and that's a strategic advantage. Uh, and they, they like our style of wrestling. You know, we, we have a very broad style that if you like Lucha, cool. If you like something a little bit more serious, cool. If a little, you want a little vintage play, it's there too. Um, so we're pretty broad, but uh, their support's been great. And, and they're, they're, this is, a, is what I, I needed in all my deals is also exclusivity because and it, it's funny because I, uh, you know, of course, like weeks after people start calling them up and say, hey, so uh, we'd like to be on BN too. And like, yeah, we're, 
we're all in with the, with with Major League Wrestling. Uh, it's a, it's exclusive long term deal. So their support has been awesome. Uh, it's important when you have these deals, and if anyone out there is you know in in a similar situation, you want exclusivity. You want uh, the ability to be on um, without anyone possibly disrupting. I think back to uh, what was it, Destination America, where all of a sudden Ring of Honor was on and Impact. There was all this weirdness. There was very like a, quickly. There was like a month or two where they overlapped. Yeah, I don't think it lasted it was, that long. But it's it's disruptive, and it, you know it's like, do they understand the nature of of the business? Do they understand what they're doing to their partnership? Uh, it wasn't good. You know that was a really bad. It was not in good faith, I guess, when it comes to what they were doing for Impact on the network end, uh, and it was messy. For us, it's important, you know, that that stayed clear, and and so again, they've been great partners, and we're going to be announcing soon another special. So it's been we're doing a two-hour special next week, in fact, during Thanksgiving called Black and Blue Friday, uh, at eight to ten p.m. So uh, it, these guys are awesome. They were at our show in Chicago. You might have seen them backstage, and what I love is. Uh, they 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 understand the talent like there's guys in the office that freak out over L.A. Park and P.C.O. and Tom Lawler and Low Key. Uh, that's great when they have that level of product knowledge. It's not like they you know usually go somewhere in a meeting they might know hey uh, The Rock or Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin. These dudes are dialed in, which I love. Uh, that's that's really cool to hear. And I want to go back to what you said about the exclusivity because a lot of your I mean not a lot but there are guys like Pinta, Phoenix, Sammy Callahan. Mm-hmm. There is that overlap with Impact. How is that relationship? You know, are you making sure these guys stay protected when they're not outside of MLW? I mean, what is that like working with the two big promotions? Well, with, when it comes to um, Impact, you know, I have a good relationship with Sanjay Dutt. He worked for MLW, and we talked like two weeks ago, and we both have the same mindset. You know, it's it's an open borders thing, and and ultimately you want to keep the talent active. Uh, some of the younger talent, especially. Uh, that need the repetition and need the experience, uh, we, we encourage that. Uh, whether it's here in the U.S. or they go to England or they go somewhere else, you know, that's important to get that exposure, especially when you're a younger guy. Uh, and I think it's also important you know, from, from the, the bigger stars that you know, everyone is on the same page to avoid that weirdness, that messiness, that, those bad feelings, that friction. So uh, open lines of communication is important. I learned that from Jim Ross. It's like when he was running talent relations, it's so important that he had great communication with the talent, so there was no weirdness. And am I reading into something the wrong way, or is this is this is this office messing with me? When you just get on the phone, not even email or text, just get on the phone and talk. It it, it just it, everyone's on the same page, and I think instinctively or in, uh, just the nature of a promoter, it's it's. You know, this is my sandbox. Don't play in it. And that's always been like the the behavior patterns of promoters for years. Uh, and today it's a little bit different. I'm, and I I think it's because hopefully people have learned from from history. And I think it's been beneficial. The the talent wins, the fans win, the promoters have won. You know, we've been able to make great matches in MLW, and so has Impact that you probably wouldn't have had the privilege of doing if you you know had an icy relationship. You closed the border, so to speak. Uh, that's no fun. And so uh, I think for us, you know, and for impact too, it's, you have to be able to provide them. If you're going to have a contract, uh, a contract that they can live with, that you can live with, everyone isn't benefiting from it's a win-win. And so for, for our talent uh, and and I'm sure impacts talent, you know, they, they can pretty much 
go where they need to go and do what they need to do, uh, except for WWE. And so these guys, if you look at Sammy Callahan or Ray Phoenix, I think Ray Phoenix worked like eight nights straight in the last like week or so. I mean, it's it's nuts. Uh, and Sammy was working nonstop too. And guys like Conan, uh, he's been working nonstop between MLW, AAA, and Impact. Uh, probably the busiest some of these guys have been, probably busier in some cases than they would be in WWE, which is pretty cool. Uh, you brought up WWE a couple times. I know you said that you learned from Jim Ross to get somebody on the phone to, to make these conversations easier. Uh, what are other lessons you learned from your time at WWE that you take with you into promoting? Vince McMahon and, and how he was uh, so – his emphasis on ruthless efficiency and accountability. Um, it can make you, on one hand, come across like a prick, but on the other hand – uh, it guarantees the fans uh, they get the product that they hope they get, uh, and the expectations of the crew is, are met. Uh, there's this kind of thing that has happened over my time in wrestling since I was a teenager in, in the 90s in, in my involvement, where you see there's kind of a, an undercurrent of a lackadaisical vibe sometimes. Um, there's a lot of hardworking people. Sometimes it's kind of like the shrug, eh, well, we'll get it right next time approach. There is no next time for WWE or Vince McMahon. And I really think that was one of the core things that separated Vince in the 90s and into the 2000s from the competitor like WCW. It's like the the expectation to get it right the first time is critical. Uh, there's no second chances, especially because he'll hold you accountable. I think a lot of places, uh, their promoters are like, well, you know, they're a little laid back. And it's a business, as Scott Hall would say. It's not it's not show friends, it's show business. And I think there's a lot of merit to that saying. What about, uh, I'll flip it then, what are the lessons or the things you took from WWE that you don't want to be a part of the MLW promotion? Well, I think the the, the thing that you have to be careful of is, is uh, politics. Uh, WWE is so huge. That there's just going to be layers. It's inevitable because uh, now more than ever, I mean, you don't you have the access you once had to Vince. Even when I was there, it's it's changed since I was there. Uh, and some would say it's better. Some would say it's it's harder to get the ear of the chairman, the emperor of the empire, and uh, that's difficult. And that's just you know a byproduct of their success and how much they've grown. Uh, for for where I'm at. Uh, to having direct access to me is easy. You know, I'm, I'm all around that arena. I'm looking at the ring post. If they need to be painted, then I'm I'm right there. If I'm in the back, I'm going over something with the guy that I want to make sure he understands before his match. Uh, that's all critical to me. To, I'm very much a micromanager. Uh, the other thing is creative teams don't work. Uh, I was a part of one. I didn't think it was successful. Uh, at WWE, I've, I've, when I've been a consultant at other companies, I've seen it and i I, it, it's it's another layer of politics. Uh, this makes it more complicated. Uh, you know, in general politics in wrestling, whether it's WWE or anywhere else, it's like you're playing a video game. You have to do one boss, you get to the another boss, to the another boss until you get to the final boss. Uh, you don't have that at MLW. It's a lot more fluid. It's a lot easier. I'm a lot more accessible most days. Um, and so I think that that that's something I learned from WWE. It's it's. Just to be able to have that direct access is so important, especially for our younger talent, uh, so they can learn, but also they can have that, that feedback, uh, good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, and, of course, you know, 
the nature of wrestling, of course, the stars are going to have access from WWE on down. They're going to have access because they're stars. But for me, I think it's important that uh, the guy jerking the curtain all the way to the top has that same access. Tell me a little bit about the crew you are working with backstage. I've seen a lot of reports. I know uh, it sounds like Conan is a producer backstage. Mm -hmm. uh, Alex Greenfield, right? I think I spied him mm -hmm. at the Chicago tapings as well. Yes. Um, and then I also read that Bruce was working as a producer and is no longer working as producer. Mm -hmm. What is what is the changing of the guard like? Why why the mixes around backstage? Well, it happens. It's the nature of wrestling. No one stays forever. Uh, Bruce and I go way back to WWE. Um, he has a super crazy schedule and, uh, he even put it out on Twitter. So did I, it's just like, he's doing a lot of stuff and, and something like where we're at right now requires a lot of time and it's just a matter of scheduling. And so we were just lucky that, uh, it's a very hard role to find someone that has that experience, the respect of the locker room, uh, understands a lot, you know, doing, producing something live with the high pressure that comes with it. And working with me, you know, having that shorthand, it's it's not you just can't just randomly get someone for that. And uh, Conan was already in the system, and uh, was really had a good groove with a lot of the guys in the back. Has worked with a lot of those guys in the back. Has worked with me since 2011. Has worked with my right hand man, Mr. Saint Laurent, since 2011, and ah, yes. known Greeny and the rest of the crew. So he fit like a glove. And so it was like usually that's a very challenging transition. Thankfully, in this case, and it's it, it's no knock to Bruce because he was awesome. It was for us. It was seamless. Uh, very rare you get that in anything, in, whether it's wrestling or otherwise. Very glad to hear things between Conan and MSL. All right, that, that guy. <laughs> it's funny. I took a picture and I put it on Instagram. Like after our New York show, we were at a diner in Westchester, and they're literally like having milkshakes. It's that's wrestling. <laughs> there's like a really there's like a picture of the three of us really drunk at one of the Wale Mania after parties that has found its way online and it's like the definitive like don't take photos with Conan photo anyway. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's there. Um uh moving away from the backstage, moving into the ring, you guys have such a great roster of talent right now. Um, it is not the same, you know, there are some similar names in like impact, but you guys have, I mean, I'm so impressed with guys like Marco stunt. Ace Romero was a great bout. I really thought that was entertaining. Low key yeah. is your current champion. Why low key is the champ? Uh, low key. And I go back, God, 15 years. And, uh, he's one of the rare guys today that really knows how to get true heat. I, I don't see enough heat in wrestling today. It's a lot of, um, fan service it's a lot of uh, cheerleading um, it's a different dynamic but true heat still is important and key draws heat and uh, and, and it's kind of blurs the lines what's real what's not and that's fun it's dangerous it's exciting and uh, he was he's just the right guy at the right time for us uh, as we start to put in motion our 2019. And for me, I always go like eh, 14 to 18 months ahead and work backwards. And uh, when I came to where I wanted to go in 2019, uh, low key was kind of the at the epicenter of it. And for TV, I think you've, you watch MLW Fusion, you'll see he's really shown something I've never seen uh, I think it's always been there, but he just hasn't had the opportunity to to show it in in his uh, on camera stuff. His on camera work has been really strong, uh, just to try to bait the baby faces and uh, be that kind of heel. You just want to see get his comeuppance, and you're wondering 
well, is it going to happen? When's it going to happen? It's all interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> him and Shane uh, really tore the house down in Chicago. And yeah, before I go any further here, Chicago, how, what was the final tally of people that were in Chicago? We had about 2,000, and uh, that that smoked our all-time attendance record. I think there's another Cis- Cicero Stadium that people Googled and instantly, without looking, thought that was ours. That was 6,000 in Italy. I'm not going to say that we didn't uh, sell out 6,000 if people wanted to run with that, but I think this one was about 2,000, and uh, we were really happy with it. Um, uh, we try to market the product to be as broad as possible, and I, I think we got that. Uh, we had something special in Chicago, and, and so much so that we we are coming back uh, March 2nd on uh, Saturday night with a big show, and uh, we have more plans for Chicago beyond that. So I'm really happy with how we did in Chicago. Great building, uh, awesome fans, uh, but you know we were also following up on All In, which was huge, and was there enough fans or interest and an appetite to to chest uh, test something else. And thankfully there, there were enough fans. There were a lot of fans. I was joking with someone saying, well, you know, they might have played uh, the Sears center. We'll just find a local Sears and put a ring in there. And uh, lo and behold, we were able to do a little bit better than that. Thankfully. Yeah. You guys, uh, I've run show. I've not run, but I've been a part of shows at Cicero stadium in the past. And you guys did such a great job making that place a uh, production quality. I mean, the trust, the light trust, all of the backdrops, yeah. It is a for those. It's going to look great on TV, but if you walked into that thing in the morning, man, it is a blank canvas. Am I wrong? Yeah, and then, you know we have it. That's a testament to our crew. Uh, we have a lot of guys that worked in TV for WWE or ECW or UFC, so they know how to dress a building and they know how to shoot it and make it look good. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, Dan Bynum, who goes all the way back to WCW, World Class Championship Wrestling, of course, with Ring of Honor as well. So uh, we have a lot of a lot of great guys that that make that thing look and feel like a big show. So I, it was it's very rare because I've been around for, I'm a dinosaur, right? Uh, I just turned 40, but I've, I've been around wrestling since the mid nineties. Uh, it takes a lot for me to get goosebumps that before we opened doors, it was like three o'clock. I was walking on the higher level of the stadium and I was looking down. I saw it all dressed. Everything looks immaculate. I said, wow. And I knew we were going to sell out. I knew we were going to turn away fans. We turned away. Like, I think I was told like over a hundred, 120 fans, uh, I, which sucks, but, um, you know, you snooze, you lose, I guess, but looking at that, I got goosebumps and I said, this is going to be a special night. And a lot of the time wrestling, you're kind of trying to turn chicken shit into chicken salad. You're trying to make something work that maybe the forces of nature or wrestling are against you. And you're just trying to keep it glued together. This was, this was one of those special nights, like everything aligned and uh, we, were, we were really happy with it. And I could, I got that feeling. I knew this was going to be something special for us and it was going to be a, a momentous night that we were going to able to now move forward and do something special with in, in the future in Chicago, which, which I was excited about. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a great building and uh, you know, it's our home in Chicago. Now you brought up all in, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, there's been a lot of teases from Cody, the Bucks, the elite crew in general, that January 1st, they are going to be making moves. Um, is there any chance you've talked to any of these guys about potentially doing anything with MLW in 2019? I have, I, I have no comment. Um, you know, I think 2019 is going to be an interesting year. I think 
there's a lot of movements. I, I think even in January alone, you're going to see a lot of interesting transactions separate and apart from Cody and the Bucks. I, some will say this year is going to be very exciting. Some will say it's going to be a very volatile year uh, with a lot of uh, movement going on. Uh, it's important to have stability during all that. And and so for us, you know, we're watching this and monitoring everything, and it's it's fun. I love when wrestling gets gets a little different and it gets a little weird, and and everything is is kind of no, shook no, up. I got to press. And I think that's what 2019 is going to be. I got to press you, Court. Right? Like you said, okay. so many broad-stroked comments there, like one right <laughs> after another. There's going to be cryptic. things moving around. What an exciting year! Oh, you can't wait to see all these things go down. We're monitoring the situation. I I don't right. can you get me you don't need to give away the farm here but can you get a little bit more specific in regards to what you may or may not be referencing that's happening in 20 in January of 2019 I think there's a lot of guys becoming free agents and a lot of ambitious moves being made um how many will there's a lot of as Bruce would say rumor and innuendo uh where is everyone to shake out and who's the most stable? You know, there's a there's there's companies hunting for TV contracts. There's come there's talent that's dying to go free agent and test free agency and do different things and and continue maybe to disrupt. Um, and not and that's in a business sense, not in like a negative sense. Disrupt. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, I I I think it's going to be a year where uh, WWE is going to come out of it always strong. Um, but there's going to be some other companies. There's going to be some winners and there's going to be some losers in 2019. I'm very curious to see who is a winner and who's a loser and uh, who, what companies are the zero-sum gains, which isn't a bad thing. Um, but it's going to be it's going to be a funky year. I mean, you look at New Japan. Uh, they're under new leadership um, with, I think it's a Danish executive. The toy guy. Yeah, what do you think of that mix-up? Or not mix-up, but shake-up in executive power over there. It's not the first, and and they 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 they're looking for different leadership. Uh, they want to get a piece of that Western culture and 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 expand New Japan's footprint there. I don't I don't know. Um, you, you look at how they're performing uh, with more frequency coming over to the states. What is that going to look like in 2019? Uh, what's their relationship going to be? I mean. I just saw this morning before we jumped on the show, Jim Ross has, has gone public saying he wasn't able to close the deal to return to New Japan on Access TV. Uh, Jim Ross has a lot of wattage, and he really was success. He was part of the success story of uh, New Japan's Wrestle Kingdom show. And it's not that the talent wasn't buzzing and they brought a lot of attention when they did that pay-per-view. But he just he has like over a million followers and he hustles and does a lot of media and he has an incredible work ethic and 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 he gives you awareness. And that, like I said earlier, about MLW for us, it's like you're always trying just to make people aware that you exist. Uh, and that's constantly that's like our number one priority. Um, New Japan now has lost Jim Ross. What are they going to do? And where's the relationship with Ring of Honor? Uh, obviously, they're doing the show in Madison Square Garden. Uh, the complexion of that show is changing uh, before our eyes. Cody Rhodes this week saying he's finishing up and his last matches with Jay Lethal in Ring of Honor. So that does that mean he's not on the MSG show? Well, he also works for New Japan, but he's, they've, they've said that he's not going to be in part of Bullet Club. There's some interesting developments there. Where does Cody Rhodes end up? Uh, there's a lot of interest there. Uh, you look at Cody and when he left WWE and his mission and his list he tweeted out, 
Uh, he had his wish list of things he wanted to accomplish, and he kind of wanted to punch the reset button on on his career and where his career was taking him. I think over the last two years, you could say he's done a pretty good job of having that freedom to kind of reset things. And uh, I think he, along with the Bucks, no matter what happens, have created incredible leverage wherever they go, whatever they do. I think they've created incredible leverage, and that's part of the game is understanding how to create leverage. Uh, so you have all these. I mean, you could make a list of all the people that are becoming free agents in the next three to four months, dude. It's a that's that's an interesting list, really interesting list. Where do they all go? Do they all go down the same road, or do they go to four different places? Uh, and and who, as a promoter, ends up the winner? Who 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 ends up losing that? That's that's the fun game. This is like a you know a Game of Thrones kind of thing going on in wrestling over the next few months. I'm I'm excited to see what happens. Um, for MLW, are you guys for 2019 your expansion plans? Obviously, stay with BN. It would sound like and focus on the Chicago market. Are there other markets you're interested in uh, getting more exposure in, or anything like that you want to tease? Yeah, no. I mean, BN and BN and MLW, it's a long-term relationship. So yeah, that that the no, no news there. Uh, no news is good news, but it's uh, we're going to be continuing to expand into different markets. We're very selective. Yeah, we want to we want to hit markets. And it's funny, Chicago. We basically decided Chicago on doing a, a poll on Instagram. Where do you want us to go next? And the amount of people that popped up from Chicago saying, "Come to Chicago, come to Chicago," we counted them. We're like, "Okay, let's try Chicago." So we'll probably do that again. Uh, we're you know we're we're going to open up Miami. We're doing two shows in Miami, uh, December 13th and 14th. Our double shot in December, our debut, and so we're excited to go down to Miami. I've not been to Miami, been to Fort Lauderdale, but this is south a little bit. Uh, so we're excited to be down there, and uh, we're we're going to Philly. We haven't been to Philly since 2002, so we're going there February 2nd with our Super Bowl weekend show, Super Fight. Uh, so. We're hitting some new markets, some markets we haven't hit in forever, and along the way, we'll see where it takes us. But you know, I, I try to manage risk the best I can as a promoter and go to the markets that seem the most viable. Hence, you know, it was a no-brainer to go beyond Orlando and go to New York, and, and, and even Chicago I don't think was a huge risk. Uh, so you just want to make the best guesses you can as you expand. Uh, that's, the, that's the biggest part of, in my position is trying to manage that and, and get it right more than I get it wrong. Um. I'll wrap up here by – you've given me more time than I was expecting. Thank you, Court. Um, I got to ask uh, – Check is in the mail. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was at the first Wally Mania. I've loved watching this <laughs> thing grow into this like insane multi-day festivity. What are the plans for WrestleMania for Wally Mania this year? I was just uh, texting the big man about it. It's up to him. Yeah, you know, it's where he wants to take it. You know, we we are his partners on it, and he's the he kind of just tells us what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. So, uh, we're waiting on him. You know, and he has a lot of things. He's got a new album coming out, and that's where this kind of started in 2015 in San Jose. It was it was an activation for his album about nothing, which he did with Jerry Seinfeld, and it was it, was, it synced up, and that's what he wanted it to do: be a kind of a, a trigger for the wrestling audience to be aware of him, and hopefully support him on the album. And they did, uh, and that was pretty cool. So, uh, he hope if things sync up, I think there's a there's opportunity. It, it might be a little off and it might then change uh where he wants what he wants to do where he wants to do it so it's kind of up in the air does wale uh have any involvement in the day-to-day mlw is he contributing in any way we we talk constantly Uh, i like to get his feedback 
Um, you know, he's very busy with his career. He's getting into doing more acting. He's doing, you know, his new album. So it's like he doesn't have the luxury of just uh, falling into down the rabbit hole of MLW and being, you know, involved on a day-to-day basis. It would be awesome. Uh, his contributions are heard every week on the show. If you watch the open to the show, uh, that's it. That's Wale. Uh, and so his support's been great. And, and I expect his support will continue to be great. He's been a great friend of mine for, for years. And, uh, you know, even we were talking right the night of the Chicago show, he was just so happy to see how it turned out. And, um, you know, we started talking about doing something like this uh, in 2014. In fact, Pete Rosenberg, who's with WWE now, was originally going to be uh, our version of Joe Rogan in the broadcast booth and uh, kind of be like the guy on the couch watching at home, giving you his perspective. Uh, and of course, Pete now is with WWE doing those things and doing his complex show, which is very cool. Um, I don't think if, in 2014, if you looked at 2018, and I would expect that MLW on national TV every Friday night. Pete would be in WWE and, and while he's doing all the things he's doing. So uh, it's kind of crazy to see how small world wrestling is and kind of how it all started in New York on the Upper West Side in 2014. And it's led us to where it has. All right. Well, hey, with that court, I'll put a button in it. Uh, we'll touch base again here, I'm sure, uh, down the road. Uh, I think it's so awesome how open you are. You're you know, running the show. Like you say, you micromanage. So I'm just trying to break down. I'm just trying to break down all the little pieces. What are we not talking about here? You know, right? Um, right. No, no. And it's it's cool that you were able to get you know that all access look at what it was like before we opened doors. Uh, the calm before the storm, or the chaos before the real storm. I was so I didn't come over and say hi to you because I was so nervous because you were talking to the wrestlers, and so I just kind of went over and talked to Ray Flores, who I'm really good friends awesome with. Guy. Uh, that's when I knew that you you guys were on top, like more than on top of the ball. <laughs> When I was like, wow, because for those that don't know who we're talking about, Ray Flores, Showtime Boxing announcer, right? right? He's also Mayweather Productions. He was the yep. he was the announcer for the Mayweather McGregor pre-fight tour, right? He was in the ring and doing yep. all the, uh, all of that back and forth. Um, yeah, he 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 was the ring announcer for the fight. Um, I worked with Ray originally uh, when I was uh, the vice president of AAA uh, American. Uh, enterprises and he was doing uh english commentary for the fight network for the AAA worldwide show and i worked with him uh got him hired for uh ufc fight pass and worked with him at combate americas uh so we did lucha we did mma and now we did mlw <laughs> so it's it, he's dude he's one of the best guys to work with he's just smooth as silk uh i love that I love that he's bilingual. I love that he has such a top level ring announcer voice and he's a young, fresh face. A lot of ring announcers are, are on the older side. So it's it's great to get some young blood in there. Yeah. And Ray always looks like a million dollars. Those suits, that hair. <laughs> you know. Dude, you could see him like eight in the morning at a production meeting. He is as sharp as they come, even in that production meeting. I've seen people walk into production meetings wearing their pajamas. And this dude still looks like he's ready to rock and roll. Uh, he's awesome. Well, Ray, I used to be a, a manager here in Chicago, and when I stopped managing, uh, the promoter I was working for took my talent, and then Ray became the manager of my talent. Like, we had a passing <laughs> of the torch. And it was very amicable. It was like one heel manager to the other. I was like, oh, you're going to be great. And I just left. 
And uh, I'll send you a video. There's actually, you might enjoy this. There's like a Christmas time wrestling vignette that Ray and I did. That's uh, one of my all time, one of my all time favorites. So he and he's a and he's a yeah he's a huge wrestling fan. So for him to be able to call something like this, I think on this scale was pretty cool. And I think fans they'll actually see him uh, tonight on uh, on our on our first show from Chicago. So uh, you'll see the talents of Ray Flores, and he's dude. He's he's seriously one of the best, if not the best, at what he does. Yeah, almost too good, almost unlikable to a point. He's so good. <laughs> he's very positive. Whatever. Hate that guy. Um. <laughs> This has been a lot of fun. Court, where do you want to send people online to find you, follow you, all to get all the updates on MLW? Yes, yes, 100%. Uh, you can get us at MLW.com. You can also check out every episode of MLW and binge on it for free, uncut, uncensored, with extended director cut versions of MLW Fusion on our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash Major League Wrestling. And you can follow me on Twitter at Court Bauer. Uh, good luck spelling that. And Instagram, Court Bauer. And I'm not on Facebook, but you can get MLW on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Major League Wrestling. Also on Instagram at Major League Wrestling and on Twitter at MLW. And tune in nationwide and in Canada and Puerto Rico every Friday night, 8 p.m. to see MLW Fusion on BN Sports. Except for tonight because we're preempted because of soccer. We'll be back next week, always 8 p.m. And we usually have replays on the West Coast and in Espanol every Tuesday night. You can check us on Bien in Espanol, and uh, it's a great show on Spanish on the Spanish network as well with uh, Andres Bermudez, who calls a lot of boxing and MMA, and is a huge wrestling fan along with Selena De La Renta. So check us out. We're on small islands. There's, there's not like there's no wild pigs. There's no there's no game. You know what I mean? There's there's nothing to hunt. The only real option is, uh, for me, while I was out there, was uh, fish from the ocean or coconuts outside of the uh, the meager portion of rice that they give you. Were you a pretty good fisherman or no? Man, I was a actually a really good spear fisherman um, in like high school. Cause I, I grew up in Southern California and actually was something that I liked to do. But... Uh, the island that we were on was uh, there was like the reef went out like I don't know the, the Goliath Island reef went out maybe like a half mile or something so it was really shallow and difficult to to swim around in and also in the real shallow water there was mostly just tiny fish so I I shot a couple of fish I shot a, they I don't even know if they have this anywhere but there was a funny scene where dan and i paddled the raft out and uh both of us having a hard time getting fish and uh i shot a puffer fish because i was swimming around i saw like the back of a fish that was like the biggest fish that i'd seen all day and i was like yes and i shot that thing and like legitimately i don't know what i would expect but it puffed up just like uh they they do in the cartoons and um (laughs) I mean, puffer fish are super dangerous also, so I was kind of freaking out because I don't know, like, they've got spikes and they have toxins yeah. in their skin and stuff. Yes! So I uh, I shot the thing, and, I was, and it was on the spear, and it was trying to get off, but spears have barbs, too, so I couldn't get it off. Jesus! <laughs> Jesus. I my, oh, my God. I swam up to the uh, raft, and I was like, Dad, Dad, take the spear! It's a puffer fish! 
He's like, what? I don't want to take it. I'm like, get it off. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the raft. I'm in the water. <laughs> I don't want this thing to get pissed off and no, spike me. Because wow. you also feel really, uh, like, when, when I was fishing in high school, I had a wetsuit and and fins and, like, my body's covered. But um, on, the, on the game, I'm, like, swimming around in, like, my short underwears. And it's like I keep like dinging my knees on the reef. And I've got all these little cuts everywhere. And the last thing you want is a an angry pufferfish to just kind of like charge at your thigh or something. At this time, I am privileged to welcome uh, two people to the Winkley. First of all, our good friend from Wrestling Inc., Glenn Rubenstein, and another new good friend of ours. You may know him as the director of the Marine Six Close Quarters. It is James. None. James, Glenn, thank you guys both so much for joining me here today. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Glenn, this was your brainchild. You inspired me. You have seen, you've seen every WWE Studios film, correct? Not every, but uh, the recent ones. I'm pretty up, pretty up on them. I enjoy them. I enjoy them quite a bit, and I'm glad we have uh, James today to talk about the Marine Six. Yeah. A uh, pivotal entry in the Marine franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to kind of lay I'm going to lay out here. I did watch the Marine 6 this morning. I've got my own questions, but Glenn, I know that you are simmering, so I'm going to let you take the reins here and start us off with your questions for James. Yeah, James. So, I one thing I really like about the Marine 5 and the Marine 6, uh you directed both. I really like how these films are exercises in low budget filmmaking um in making the most out of different sets and locales using recognizable WWE talent, putting them in scripts and situations that speak to their abilities of doing something that's action-oriented um, and establishing their characters. If you could, for our audience, sort of give them an overview of how you came into working for WWE Studios and what that process is like in putting a film like The Marine Six together. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, good knowledge, by the way. So I think um, my introduction into WWE... Obviously, as a as a young as a youngster was, you know, seeing seeing the uh, the matches and, and whatnot, but it never really translated into the UK in the same way it does in America. Um, there's a big following and it's getting bigger, but it, it's not the same, you know, monster sport uh, or, you know, sports entertainment that you have over there. And I was doing my third movie, which was called Eliminators. It was a reteam for me and a martial arts actor called Scott Adkins. I'd previously worked with him on a movie called Green Street 3. And WWE were the kind of, they were the main um, producers behind this particular show. They liked what I'd done with Scott on Green Street. So they, you know, broached me to do something similar, like a kind of Taken in London not a huge amount of money um, to put on the movie. As you said, these movies are kind of low budget, but they were going to throw a WWE superstar at the time. That was Wade Barrett or um, Stuart Bennett, as he's also known. English guy. So he was going to play the hitman. Scott Atkins was going to play an American kind of on the run. And we didn't have a lot of money, as we, as I said. I managed to partner with producers that I'd worked with on my first two movies and with those guys, we've got a real great friendship and I know how to kind of stretch a budget, especially shooting in London because it's my hometown. I've got the crew and I've got the favors to kind of pull in. So I was able to do a lot with not a lot of money. And 
once we went out, once the movie was complete and went over to Los Angeles to deal with the studio, because up until that point, it had only been phone calls and emails and et cetera, um, you know, was able to develop more of a personal relationship with the producers over there and the president of the studios at the time, a guy called Michael Luisi. And off the back of that, you know, cutting the long story short, the edit went well, et cetera. He really liked the movie eliminators and wanted to partner on something as soon as possible um to do another movie and i was like okay well look i really want to do an original movie um but he was like okay well look i I want you to do another original movie but we've got something really exciting planned which was the marine five and he kind of pitched it to me as like a mini expendables of uh cast members you know there was going to be at least five um superstars in the movie and i was like okay well look i didn't really want to go down the sequel road because i'd already been down that road with green street and nothing against it but i just want to kind of elevate my career but i thought you know what like this project sounds interesting as you said like the marine franchise is wwe studios biggest franchise and it's got a lot of fans out there so i thought okay well i'll you know i'll entertain this for a little bit and i really enjoyed working with the studio so they introduced me to Mike the Miz at Hell in a Cell in LA, and this was probably about two or three years ago. And we kind of we kind of got on like I I think I insulted him uh, when I first saw him because he was doing a British accent, and I was I I was kind of in that locker room chat mode because I was with Stu Bennett, and we were locker room chatting, and I and I kind of you know I slated Mike. I said, Oh, is that your is that your English accent? And he was like, yeah, what's wrong with it? And I, I thought I upset him. And then later down the line, I was like, no, I didn't upset him. I was actually kind of bantering with him and he kind of enjoyed it. So we, yeah, we basically went on this journey where WWE kind of courted me and they said, look, we haven't got the script at the minute, but we know it's going to be, I suppose, loosely talking and for the sake of time, like going to be kind of like Die Hard in an, in an underground car park <clears throat> with five wrestlers and we're going to do it in vancouver and i suppose sort of going back to your question which is how do these things get put together certainly in that respect at that point on that movie it was michael luisi and his um creative producers in-house at the studios that were kind of like right what are we going to do to make a splash so in terms of like the creative vision at that point like really that was that was their brainchild and then they they share with me their pitch, you know, which was probably 10 to 20 pages, something like that. I have an input in that with, OK, it might be cool if we do this. That's a bit cheesy. That's way too cheesy, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. And then we kind of get to the place where the script's going to be written. And um, they, you know, the studios are the ones paying for, paying for it. So there, there might be people up in the you know, in the producing uh, at the top of the studio who kind of have particular writers that they want to favour, etc. And they, so there was a script flying around at the time. I can't remember what it was, but it was really good. And WWE liked it. And they thought, OK, well, these guys would be really great writers for the Marine Five. Um, and it was the McHenry brothers. And um, basically, they brought them on to flesh out the treatment that we already had. And then, you know, then you've got a 90 page script and then it actually came down to I'm not sure, like casting wise, if I'm supposed to go into <laughs> like, the road we were going down with it. But it was always going to be, um, 
it was always going to be Mike, obviously, because he's the lead, he's the Marine, Jay Carter, etc. <clears throat> but I think at the time, you know, you could probably read between the lines and work it out, but it, they were after four bad guys in a motorbike gang, and it was it was going to be like a faction at the time. Yeah. And obviously, three of those guys are st- were still in that faction. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly who you're referring to. Yeah, so I... I'm, I, yeah, well, that's the gist of where this was going. So it was, oh, fuck it. I'll just, oh, excuse me. Um, no, I'll just say, um, yeah, so basically it was supposed to be social outcasts versus yeah. myths. And, you know, then there was the, okay, so we know kind of where we want to go with this. We know, like, they had the right look. And then it came down to getting them to kind of tape for each role. Um, they each read two different parts and off the back of that myself and the president of the studios you know worked out who who we were going to put into each role and then obviously um i don't know exactly what down with adam i never met him but adam was sort of off the table yeah we needed a replacement and we said well you know it'd be great if we got female in there female biker and i think what might have happened is naomi might have been on the injuries list at the time I think she might have had an ankle issue. Mm. So she was around and it was like awkward because the the thing when you're shooting a movie is it's never as easy as, you know, that person's in for four days and all those four days are consecutive. It might be that on that, on that particular job, we we were shooting over 20 days and it might've been that like that, that role had two in week one, one day in week three and one day in week four. So you kind of need people to be available and, at the time, Naomi was available and she was, you know, uh, repairing herself. And she honestly, she was so good. She was a blessing in disguise. It was awesome that we got her. And even though she was sort of with, I can't even remember the injury. It was like a, maybe it was a shin or a sprain or an ankle or something, something leg related. But either way, she had quite a physical fight. And I can remember feeling quite bad for her that I was putting her through all of this action staff um the stunt team in vancouver deserve a shout out by the way a guy called fraser corbett um was the stunt guy and we like literally she landed we put her straight into rehearsals and i think within two days she was like shooting a major fight scene um i don't know if you remember that particular sequence from the marine five but she she's like wielding a knife she's so quick and she was one of definitely in the whole sort of superstar experience that I've had. She was like one of the quickest in terms of picking up choreography, being fast, almost like a martial artist, which is like the, the background I'd kind of come into this from as opposed to like brawly style fighting. Yeah. And yeah, then so she locked on, which was great. And then um, so when you're making a movie, you know, you, you obviously you have your favorite like I meet all the cast. I do certainly with the superstars, they were kind of a little bit dictated to me by the studios per se. We had to kind of go back and forth to, to get the particular stars we wanted. But then you come to casting the subsidiary roles. And <clears throat> what happened was <clears throat> I met loads of people in Canada, met some great people in Canada, but the top, the top person I wanted, I think it was either WW or Sony. We were, we were going back and forward on this, our particular, our first choice for this particular role. <clears throat> and it wasn't really my first choice, but 
I'd had all my other first choices. So I was going to, you know, I was going to just let the studio, it was such a small role. Was, okay. You know, let the studio win this one for sure. Because we're all, we're all pals, etc. And what happened was I put, I took, I took that, I printed that person's picture up and I stuck it on the wall amongst the whole cast. And I think it was like a brunette girl, a blesser. I can't remember her name, but I looked at the wall and I was like, wow, like this cast could look a little bit more diverse. Um, so I spoke to the students and I said, look, I really think we need to put like a blonde person in this role because like we've got loads of brunette guys. We've got a couple of like redhead guys. We've got a couple of black people. Like, I think we really need to like mix it up a bit. And then my, uh, the producer said, well, hang on a minute. Like we've had Maurice a couple of times. She's Mike's wife. She's probably going to be up there. She's good actress. Do you want her to tape? And I was like, Oh, I've seen Mike's wife in stuff. Cause I think she'd done Santa's little helper and whatnot. So, yeah, basically, that's kind of how we ended up with Maurice. And, you know, some of the comments, it's it's painful in the reviews because obviously, like, while some of the some of the reviews are great, obviously, but they with the fans, they obviously highlight different areas that I do as a filmmaker because they want to see their favorite superstars. And one thing that I got crucified a little bit with was um, why why is Maurice in this for like four minutes? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, cause she, I, I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who has to see it, but you know, she's only in it for the first like four minutes. So I got a lot of like, why did you do this to Maurice? She should be in a, she should be bigger in the movie. And the truth is it, cause she was never really actually supposed to be in the movie. That was like a kind of afterthought. I mean, yeah. had we, you know, had we, had we known we were going to get Maurice a week before we started shooting, we would have, we would have definitely enhanced that role. And the truth is as well, like when you see the career that, you know, Bo did really well out of the movie, um, yeah. about Alice, but you know, Heath, for example, straight after, you know, he, and, and, uh, the, the, the two boys, you know, Kurtz and, and Bo became, um, the Misterage and, 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 um, Heath became his own thing. And like Heath just blew up, and I was like, "Oh damn!" Like we gave Heath the smallest role in that movie, and same with with uh, Naomi because it was really her. It felt like her WrestleMania a little bit. Yeah, uh, two, two WrestleManias ago, you know, in Florida, and I was like, "Oh, like these guys." I I felt so spoiled to have them, and I wish I'd been able to use them more. But the truth is, when you've only got sh- twenty days to shoot, and the script is already there, you know, the the train has already left the station, so you just don't have time to kind of start writing more stuff in. Um, not without, not on this kind of budget of movie, you know, obviously if you've got endless money and endless time, you do anyway. So I've kind of waffled about five, but that's where five happened. And I really, I, I felt like I generated this really great relationship with, with Mike, uh, Miz, like we became really good friends and that movie finished really well. It got really great screening just before wrestlemania we did a we did a show in in orlando at universal studios and it was a great q a and it felt like a real good movie you know so the I, I definitely recommend you watch it if you've only watched one wwe studios movie the second one you should watch is maroon five um that's for you nick but yeah thank you um, i will I, I i have to go back and watch all of these movies now and listen i hate to cut you off but listening to you talk about the craft of making these is only making me want to watch these movies so much more so thank you anyway oh cool well, i'm pleased 
And that's what's cool about them. I mean, that's kind of what I've been saying, James, is just a champion of these films, because I think that it's so interesting and creative the way you use these locations, you know, and you work within the constraints of it, and you have this talent that people have a natural affection um, and fondness for because they're WWE superstars. So I think even at worst with the WWE Studios films, it feels... um, you know, I mean, I hearken it back as an 80s kid to like when you had the camcorder and a bunch of your friends and you're making, you know, your action movie. That's maybe the worst case scenario, but that's still pretty good because you have the familiarity with the talent. And at best, you're able to make these diamonds in the rough, these movies that people maybe don't have the highest of expectations for. But you can turn out these very solid uh, little action thrillers. Um, I think the Marine 5 and 6 are great examples of that. Um, speaking of which, you mentioned uh, the the rub that, Bo Dallas and Curtis Axel got from the Marine Six the moment that Naomi and Heath had in conjunction with their trajectory in the WWE with, uh, pardon me, with the Marine Five. So with Marine Six, you definitely stumbled into that again with Becky Lynch. Can you talk a little bit about her involvement in the process of being cast as the main villain in the Marine Six? Yes, yes, of course. So similar process happened with number six. You know, the studios come up with a treatment. I then go back and forward on what works, what doesn't work. It was always going to be a two-hander with Mike and someone. And it was always going to be a female villain. So that was, like, conceived from day dot. Um, Then it becomes about, right, well, obviously we know we got Mike, but who who are we going to put in these these other roles? And a few names went around. I'm not going to go into them because basically we ended up with the wish list. You know, we ended up with who we wanted um yeah Be- i mean like i actually heard we were getting becky before we got sean i wasn't supposed to tell anyone i wasn't obviously with all these things i'm signed loads of paperwork so i'm not supposed to tell anyone anything but i got Be- they they were like they they kind of slipped up on the phone because i'm like oh look i need to start because we start making the move we start about you know six weeks before we start shooting and I need to start thinking about like costume and like, I want the colors of the set to kind of like portray the environment of who's the villain and stuff like that. So I, I'm kind of, and obviously with Becky, for example, she's got such vivid hair that, you know, I didn't, I wanted to make sure the color palette and everyone I'm getting working behind the scenes, isn't going to start painting loads of rooms orange because all of a sudden, you know, when Becky walks into it, she's just going to disappear in the room. So like obviously most people wouldn't think about this but you know we've put a lot of blues and greens on the wall so her hair really pops so she really pops and anyway I didn't know who we were gonna get and then they kind of let it slip on the phone that they were looking at that it was probably gonna be Becky and I was like I just did like a silent you know um jump for joy in my flat in uh, in London I was like yes this is gonna be awesome um and then closely followed by finding out I was getting Sean and obviously, you know, because as a as I was growing up, I wasn't a huge WWE like I wasn't knowledgeable of it. And but I know who Shawn Michaels is. You know, I know the the Heartbreak Kid. I know the theme music. So again, I was just doing this little fist bump um, to myself, like yes, we've got him. So they got attached, and yeah, it, it was relatively smooth actually. Um, you know, Sean's. It, I think it comes down to being available as well. You know, Sean's obviously prominent in, in WWE universe, but he's not in the ring all the time. So, if you need him for twenty days, I think we had twenty-two on Marine Six. If you need him for twenty-two days, 
he's probably going to be around or they can make it work. And similarly with Becky, because she, her like career wasn't, you know, as over as she is right now, then we could, you know, she, she was quite flexible and she's from England and we shot the movie in England. So it just kind of worked for like the production side. And, and then Mike actually, well, you're going to announce what happens anyway, but we only had Mike for three weeks of the four. So we shot for four, but we only had Mike for three. And, you know, uh, that wasn't because it wasn't the story. What I'm getting at is the story didn't evolve around. We only had Mike for three. So we decided to write it this way. It was always this way. And actually I've kind of bypassed because I'm just waffling. So tell me to stop. But, um, I'll say stop. I'll stop for a moment. We're we're circling around here, and I'll say spoiler alert. I put it at the top, but uh, you know, just for you right now, there's a big change. There's a big thing that happens at the end of this movie. Glenn, I feel like you should get to sit, describe what yeah, happens here. I was shocked. Okay, so watching this movie, you think about every trope from action films. Um, HBK. Look, I have to say, James, the sequence of the grain shoot that happened, I thought was very inventive. I absolutely love that. HBK gets impaled. Loved the sequence with the gunpowder and the cauterizing the wound. I thought that was very cool. And I thought, given every trope of action films, the younger star, the older mentor, I thought HBK was going to be a goner in the third act. 100%. No. Yes, 100%, yes. Glenn. I agree. Yes. And, but no, Jake Carter. Jake Carter, the Marine. The star of three, four, five, and six uh, meets his unfortunate end in the Marine Six, and HBK uh, is the hero who saves the day and carries out the mission at the end of the film, has the final fight against Becky Lynch. Um, it was shocking. So I would love to know, first off, how the decision came about to retire Jake Carter as a character, given that this has been a signature role for The Miz um, and so, so much continuity in the WWE. And I think what uh, you know, Nick and I were talking about this on Messenger before, is HBK going to carry the mantle in the Marine Seven uh, into, into keeping the franchise going? Well, I think there's two questions there. So let's yeah. ask, let's do the first one, which is, <clears throat> you know, from the very first, you know, I think the first phone call I had with the studios when they told me they want to do six, because because they they said, do you want do you want to do it? And I thought, oh well, is Mike? Do-? My first question was, is Mike doing it? Because yeah. you know, Mike's become such a good friend, and I kind of want to continue that story with him. I said, is is Mike doing it? He said, yes. I said, okay, cool. Well. What's the premise? They go, okay, well, <clears throat> it's like, because it wasn't a brewery originally. It was going to be like a, bo- a block of tenement flats, mm. a bit bit like the raid. Yes. And they said, okay, well, it's going to be two Marines in the tenement flats. They've got to fight their way out. And uh, spoiler alert, guys, I'm going to say it. And we're going to retire Mike. You know, we're, we're going to, oh, I can't say it. I don't want to say it. <laughs> we, <laughs> We're gonna. Oh, I'm gonna say it. We're gonna kill. We're gonna kill Mike, guys. We're gonna kill Mike. Ah, gonna kill ah. I said it. Oh my god. Um, and I just like on the phone. I was just like, "What did you just say? Could you repeat that?" <laughs> and then I, they, they went, "Yeah, no, we're gonna we're gonna kill him." And I went, "Are you? I don't know about this guy. <laughs> like, I don't know if we should be doing that. Like, this is crazy. Like, who does this? Like, I've never seen a movie where they've done this." And I said, "Do." You, you know, we should think about this <laughs> as if they already hadn't. Obviously yeah. had. They're like, no, we're doing it. And I was like, oh, okay, well, can you just let me sit on this for like a day before I really commit? Because I'm interested. <clears throat> anyway, then a day went by and I thought, you know what? Like, actually, 
doing this would be amazing um, because you never, you, you know, really these movies, like you said, you know, um, you know, they kind of reminiscent a little bit of like the canon movies of the 80s and, and whatnot. Yeah. And um, they didn't do that. Like nobody did this. And I, and I thought, well, you could keep making Marine movies, but they're always going to be something in something. You know, they're either going to be die hard in a car park, die hard in a tenement block, die hard in a forest. And there's only so many of them you can watch. Like all of a sudden you're going to be die hard in space. So when they said, are we going to do that? I was like, wow, that is truly shocking to the genre. I don't know if anyone's done that. I'm interested. I'm excited. And secondly, if anyone's killing Jake Carter, Marine five was definitely the reviews I was reading. I was reading at the time. Marine five was like doing the best other than the John Cena theatrical release, which is a different mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. You know, Marine five was regarded as the, as the best in the Marine to that point. And I thought, well, I'm not going to let somebody else mess this up. If anyone's killing Jake Carter, I'm going to do it and I'm going to work with Miz and we're going to make it look really good. So it was always um, a key for me that that sequence in particular, we had some time to do something um, and do it properly and, and give him the right kind of send off because he, he has been a great Marine. And, and also, you know, you'd have to speak to Mike about it. It's a bold move for him to go. Yeah. Like I'm happy for this. You know, some, some actors might not want to do that. And, yeah. um, uh, it's just an example of how generous and giving Mike is, you know, and his acting career isn't done. Like ending the Marine may be the best thing that's for him because now he can go and lead his own new franchise, you know, um, if WWE want to give him, you know, an original franchise, which they should, cause he's one of the best, um, you know, actor actors in terms of like screen actors that they have on the roster aside from, you know, obviously you're looking at the rock and Batista and et cetera, but, yeah, it's exciting times moving forward. So that that's the gist. That's how it happened. Uh, yeah, and then I'll follow up with what Glenn said about Shawn Michaels. Is is he going to be the one to, to pick up the mantle? Does the Marine continue on with a new Marine, in your opinion? Um, so I can't... This is all just me talking yeah, now. Yeah, of course. There's, no, there's nothing official here. There's no scoop because they wouldn't tell me that anyway. And I think you have to kind of look at how well the movie does before you can just commit to going, it's going to be Shawn Michaels because, um, you know, there's too much, it's too much of a, a statement right now. You know, it should, even if, will they continue the franchise? I hope they do. They've got the platform to do it. You know, the problem with these movies is every time you make one, the budget kind of gets a little bit smaller because you're fighting piracy and all these kind of things. And when people don't pay for the movies, it just means that less money gets put into the next one, which is really painful because then people are expecting, you know, Fast and the Furious or, you know, um, a Die Hard or Transformers, but you're really making it for 1% of the budget that those movies have. And it's already hard enough and movies just get stripped and stripped. So if I would, if I was in charge of the studios, I would make a Marine seven. I would, this is what I would do. I would, I would continue it with Sean and I would team him up with a female and maybe even do a handover in the middle of the movie. I don't yeah. think you want to kill Sean, though. I think you maybe want to, like, maybe Sean's got a Marine daughter, you know? And, <laughs> like, Sean's, like, this is how the movie starts. Okay, I've got it, guys. This is how we'll do it. 
So I am so here for this right now. Please, yes. I'm so here. Write it down. This is what we're going to do. We start at Jake's funeral, okay? And you have all of the other Marines. So you have to get Cena, you get Ted DiBiase, <laughs> and you get Sean, and they're all around the coffin, right? And then, and it's and it's also got Sean's daughter, who is, let's say, is... Is the is the future of the Marine franchise? I don't know who you give it to. Maybe Charlotte. Paige. I'm not sure. Charlotte. Let's, Charlotte. Definitely Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Now you're now you're cooking because we give it to Charlotte, and then you know, did Becky Lynch die? I don't know. I didn't see a body. <laughs> right. I didn't see a body. So then you end up the handover from Sean to Charlotte, and then you basically end up with Charlotte versus Becky in a movie, and boom, and that's seven. And then we can talk about eight, and eight is obviously you've got to bring Ronda into it somehow. I well, love- seriously. Well, I'm telling you, with seven, you could do it. Uh, Becky could show up at the funeral, and it's like Die Hard in the Cemetery. It kicks off in the cemetery. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, because then you'd make, you'd make loads of polystyrene headstones, and you'd just blow them up. Yeah, mausoleums. I mean, God, it just writes itself. It writes itself. In fact, I think they did it in Assassins with Stallone, but I but <laughs> you can do it again. Assassins was like 97. It's 20 Absolutely, years. Absolutely. No one remembers that. Yeah. No, forever ago. Me, just me. <laughs> no, I love it. And I tell you, I think there's going to be a seventh one because I think if you just come down to the economics of the situation with Becky Lynch, where she's at right now and with the Miz, where he's at right now and having HBK in the mix, I don't know what the early returns are uh, based on streaming and sales, but I would be shocked if this is not the the highest grossing um, since the original of the Marine franchise, just given all those elements, let alone from the fact that it's a very solid film you've made. Thank you very much. I, I, I really appreciate I really appreciate what you've said. I mean, look, I don't know. The studios haven't contacted me. Um, i got to say, though, you know, Michael Luisi, the president of the studios at the time, he he was the he was really the brainchild of putting those three together. Maybe he was working behind the scenes with Vince or whoever, but it was really that was really him that came from. And uh, I thank him for it because I've I've been watching the, you know, I've been streaming these shows and and um, definitely like the cheers that have been going on during the trailer alone have been fantastic to see. So it's exciting. Absolutely. So let me ask you that uh, when you think about potential projects, I mean, do you think about it in that way of watching WWE programming and seeing talent and thinking, oh, there might be something there, or I have an idea, or I know a writer, or there might be a package, uh, you know, something we could put together that would be great for X, Y, or Z superstar. Do you find that your brain's working that way now as you think about future projects with the studios and continuing this relationship? Yes, definitely. Like, honestly, starting out, you know, because I'm five movies in now, two are not WWE and three have been WWE Studios. So I think in two different ways. And you're always thinking cast, whether you're thinking about a WWE movie or, um, you know, a a non-WWE studio movie or, or an indie movie or something. So I've obviously been opened up to this world over the past three years and it's a world I knew very little about but it's it's a world that you can kind of understand quite quickly and start to recognize quite quickly and it's so much fun that um yeah no I do I do look at the 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 superstar roster and I'm thinking oh yeah I'll pitch that I'll pitch that and so I put it in an email to WWE studios and and if it comes back and they like it then you know we'll talk about it and if not then you know, they'll move on. They've got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies going on uh, over there. So, um, they're, you know, they're definitely looking at superstar-driven content, I'm sure, um, because that's kind of 
where we've gone with the last three and you know they've also gone with some of their other product that is coming out or has you know um fighting with my family for example is obviously uh, on brand focused you know with the page life story and you're using the superstar talent and then they did the they did a comedy um josh demal directed which i haven't seen yet but i know they kind of cast it up with like seamus is in it and a few other guys so i hope i haven't spoiled <laughs> spoiled anything but um yeah so no it does go through my mind but you know obviously i was just joking when i pitched marine 70 there i haven't i haven't actually pitched that yet <laughs> and i can't really tell you the ones i am pitching because you know i want them to be a surprise for the fans i have a random question for you james uh yeah. right at the top of the movie i noticed it said it was edited by chuck norris is that the same <laughs> chuck norris yeah, he's taken time out of his busy schedule of beating up. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's not. It's it's a great editor in the U in the US um, called Chuck Norris. Well, Charles Norris, Chuck Norris. I call him Chuck. And I, he actually was the assistant editor on Eliminators, um, which was two movies ago with WWE, which is how I met him. Uh, we had a great editor on that movie, Anne Marine Five, called Paul Harb. He's he does. Um, He's just on Creed 2 and does a lot of the Expendables and stuff. But he was busy on, I think he was working on the Maze Runner at the time. So he was unavailable. And being that Chuck had been the assistant for us on Eliminators and he had a great temperament. And he's an editor in his own right. You know, I think he does the Dragonheart movies. And um, he's done a couple of big sequels for Universal. So he just felt like a really good fit. But no, that's a real, yeah, basically Chuck. Chuck Norris is a is a real person. He's not the eighties fighting legend Chuck Norris, even though <laughs> even though I wish he was, and I sometimes make jokes as if he is. But no, he's a, he's a great guy. Okay. Uh, so James, one thing I would like to know, uh, in addition to uh, what you're working on next and what you have upcoming, uh, perhaps if you could tease if there is a particular talent on the WWE roster who you see great potential in, or you would like to work with in the future. I think that'd be really interesting to know. Well, I'm a sucker for the superstars that I've already worked with because I love them all. I think they are so talented and hardworking and, you know, they've got such great charisma and temperament of being on set. So I would always champion those who have, you know, who I've already worked with. Um, I think Bo Dallas, you know, has got another movie in him for sure. You know, I like him playing the villain. You'd want to do something different from motorbikes maybe cut his hair or something. I don't know, but I I'd be interested in seeing him and his brother, um, yeah. do something because Bray's really cool as well. And he's such a presence when you meet him and they're both actually really quite witty. You know, they've got quite dark characters, but they are, you know, they got a real good back and forward. So I'd like to see those two partner. Um, so Sean Michaels, obviously, I'm. I'd love to. I, you know, I haven't seen Triple H in anything for a long time, but I think Sean and Triple H doing like a kind of more violent version of Last Last Vegas or something. I don't know. Something <laughs> kind of. Violent. Oh, I love that. Put something a bit. You know, put something a bit. Um, you know, like an older buddy. It may be like a Midnight Run, but with, um, but with Sean and. Uh, and H, um, or, uh, you know, I think Rhonda being on the roster, you know, she's, she's definitely proven in fighting in movies. I don't think we've seen her 
do enough on her own as a as a lead. So I'd love to see her in something. And I think that she's obviously got the draw within the, with the superstars and with maybe like more of a general audience. So you'd be able to put it. Um, Miz, like big fan of. Charlotte, I love. She's great. Um, there's so many people. There's so many guys. I, I want to uh, get in the... I'm sorry. Go, well, I was going to say you were you were talking about uh, you brought up hair a couple times, and I actually have written on my questions here. Shawn Michaels is bald now. Was there any talk of him shaving his head for the Marine? Did he talk about wanting to not have his hair in the movie? <sighs> yeah. So this is this is an exclusive for sure. Um, Sean's great, by the way. And the first, it was literally the first time. So the first day we met, we met about three or four days before we were ready to shoot the movie. And he said, look, I'm, um, how do you want me to wear my hair? And da, 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 da. And I was like, oh, well, we'll do this. Because as I said, before you get the talent, you're kind of already prepping the movie. The train has already left the station. So off the back of like the car, the, the, the most recent photos and stuff that Sean was sending us from the States, because there are obviously times that you have to put some doubles in. And it's not to do with the superstars lack of inability in doing a special move because they can all do the moves, but it's more a case of insurance and preserving that your actor is going to be well enough to see their way through the whole movie. So there's a couple of stunts in the movie where, you know, I wanted to double Sean and I, and I also wanted to double Mike and I also wanted to double Becky. So I have these doubles at my disposal just in case I want to do anything like that might be, you know, a little bit too dangerous for them. And that's more from an insurance level. And um, we'd already like got this, we'd already got a wig for the, for the double and we'd done all this stuff. So all of that stuff was kind of ready before Sean arrived. And then Sean did say to me, like in one of our early meetings, he was like, you know, James, like, do you you want me to cut the hair? And I said, Sean, we can't cut the hair, man. That's like, people are coming to see the movie for that hair. You know, like, it's legendary. I'm, and I don't want to be the guy that cuts Sean Michael's hair because I don't know what it's going to look like when it's off. So I said, oh, well, okay, Sean, um, I don't know if we can do that. I need to speak to the studio. I need to speak because I, I don't know, like, merchandising-wise or franchise-wise, if these guys, you know, I can't, like, we dyed Becky's hair a, a slightly different shade to make it pop less. But we did, but like actually cutting someone's hair off is kind of irreversible. So I was really scared of doing it, but Sean did offer it at the time. And I made an excuse because we already had spent, you know, however much on a double and and a wig and all this stuff that it was just like, it's kind of too late in the day to kind of now be cutting Sean's hair because then we, I think we'd already bought this particular double over from somewhere in Europe. It wasn't even like he was an English guy. So he was just the guy that best could do what we needed um because there's a pretty long jump in the movie and yeah so no sean long story short sean did offer and we declined and um it was weird because i feel like he was giving me the permission and i didn't i didn't want to be the guy who did it and now and, and then straight after he finished the movie he went and did it so good for him he i think he wanted to thank you yeah very nice yeah uh, well, I we've gone quite a bit here. Glenn, I'm going to throw it to you if you've got anything left you want to ask James. I, I want to thank you, James, so much for the time here today. You've given us more than uh, more than we asked for. Very informative. 
Uh, you're, you're welcome. I got, I got another five at least if you need it. Yeah, I would love to know, James. So what are you working on now? Any uh, projects or anything you want to plug or talk about what's coming up next? Yeah, so we've got, I'm doing a few things. Nothing that needs a hard plug, but um, there's lots going on. I'm, I'm moving into writing as well. So I'm writing a few bits of my own. Um, I'm reading some really interesting stuff. Me and WWE have got something else, you know, that we're, you know, talking about. But um, there's no confirmation on that yet. Um, but yeah, they look like with the WWE studios, they've really treated me really well and like family for the past, um, you know, for the past three years. So that relationship's really good and I'd like to continue it. So, um, yeah, p providing that project is correct. Like that will probably be the next project, but failing that, you know, I'm, I'm also talking about other, other action stuff and, um, and a drama project, which has got barely any fighting in as well. So, um, there's a lot going on. It's a really exciting year. And, you know, um, I think it shut, it kind of shuts down. The film industry kind of shuts down December and January. Um, because no one wants to make movies in the cold, although we made Marine Six in the freezing cold. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, that's another story. So I, I felt so guilty on Marine Six because these guys are, you know, running around in T-shirts. And as I say, we shot the movie in London to look like Portland, Oregon. And it was supposed to be fall in the movie, but it was literally snowing. And Sean Michaels and is running around in a T-shirt. And I'm just like, Sean, man, like, please put a jacket on, like, I'm I I'm getting a cold just looking at you and he was like no no James I was like all right <laughs> uh, so these guys are just running around getting cold but they they were such troopers and actually I think one of the reasons that they're so good when you get them on a movie is because they have such a life on the road you know and they're getting changed in different hotels and whatnot and different car parks every kind of night you know, the fact that they can come and be with me for a month and it's one hotel and, you know, there's a, there's almost like a kind of normality to it and they get to actually be creative and kind of do their job, you know, do the athletic stuff, but then also flex their, you know, acting muscles as well and be in one place. I actually feel like it's a little bit of a holiday for them in a weird way, although it's not, you know, because film shoots can be very stressful, but because the WWE on the road, schedule is way more stressful and there's only a certain type of person that could do it they i'm just so grateful when with working with them and then when you get you know talent that can actually act as well it's a real gift because they're not causing you any problems on set and they're just like really family friendly good people to work for and work with so yeah kudos to those guys i just wanted to make sure they got a good plug no, absolutely, man. And uh, the Marine 6, out now on digital and DVD. Highly recommend you check that out, and the Marine 5 as well. Really, the whole series is great. James, thank you so much for your time today. We hope you'll come back on the Wrestling Inc. podcast and talk more about your upcoming projects when they see release. Uh, I follow you on Twitter, and we'll definitely be promoting this interview. So glad you were able to shed some light on the process of making a film for the WWE Studios. No worries. Yeah, thank you for having me, Nick, and thanks for uh, the idea, Glenn. Appreciate the reaching out. Yeah. Excellent. Absolutely. Great talent, Court, Johnny, and, of course, our good new friend, James Nunn. And I'm uh, back here with Jesse Collins now. Jesse, we're going to wrap it up here. Why did TakeOver work so well? Why does TakeOver give me the good feels when shows like Survivor Series, Raw, and SmackDown don't necessarily do the same right now? I think it's just how they use their talent. 
They don't overflow the the card with too many matches. They don't worry about getting everyone on the show. And obviously, Survivor Series, you had guys like AJ Styles and Randy Orton and big stars like that who weren't on the show. But they don't worry about getting like everyone on the show as far as like having so many matches and using all these multi-man matches. And they just let the talent do do what they do best. You know, it doesn't. It's not really not surprising that NXT is so successful because. Basically, what WWE has done is they've taken the best talent in the on the independents and basically brought them in into one company, gave them a nice production budget, and just lets them do what they do best. So it's really not surprising that these guys do so well. I think in WWE on the main show, sometimes we see too much writing, stuff being over choreographed, and we don't feel that same kind of. It's not nearly as fun as we get in NXT where these guys who are super talented are allowed to be that talented. I think it's fair to say on the main roster, there are guys who are really talented that are not put in the position to allow to, to reach that kind of potential that they have. Could not agree with you more, Jesse. And we are going to put a, put a pin in it for today. What a long, fun, awesome Thanksgiving episode of the Winkly. It's been, we will be back next week with uh, I'm supposed to be, I'll tease it right now. I'm supposed to be interviewing uh, WWE, former WWE superstar, former WWE world champion, Christian. So tune in next week for that. That should be a great time, along with a couple other interviews as normal. Uh, right now uh, on the site, you can go over and find Michael Weissman's uh, editorial about called Live... Uh, it says, Live Attendance Woes Put WWE at a Crossroads. It's an in-depth, info-packed editorial looking at the business dealings of WWE and how the low live attendance numbers have affected them. You can also today, Thanksgiving, go over and find my good buddy Brian Wolf. He's got an editorial looking at what an ideal Royal Rumble 2019 looks like. Of course, this Saturday night's WWE Starcade on the network. We'll have all your coverage right here on Wrestling Inc. And Jesse, you've got an editorial coming out this Friday, the latest views from the turnbuckle. What are you going to be talking about this week? I'm going to talk about Daniel Bryan and Daniel Bryan's kind of heel run and what this could what this could mean for him and what it could mean for WWE. There you go. Uh, I'm, of course, Nick Hausman. I'm at Wink Rebel. Jesse, where do you want to send people to find you online? On Twitter, at Jesse Collings, J-E-S-S-E-C-O-L-L-I-N-G-S. Yeah, and, uh, of course, join us next week. As I said, go over to iTunes, subscribe, Wrestling Inc. Audio, and remember, if you winked, you didn't miss it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.